Hello everybody and welcome to some interseason goodness from the sequelizers. I am your host Jack Chambers, as always, and joining me, also as always, it's Matt Stockton. This is the Kobayashi Maru, 19 periods out of Altar 6. We have struck a gravity mine and have lost all power. Our hull is penetrated and we, we've sustained many casualties. Thanks, Matt. That You're was, welcome. That, that was a journey. <laughs> <laughs> and speaking of going on journeys, joining us, also as always, it's Tim Matum. Let me tell you something. This is not an easy job. I get on the call on the radio, dispatch. It's bad news and it stinks. But this is my job and I love it. Because I want to do well. In this life and in this world, I want to do well. And I want to help people. And I get 20 bad calls a day. But one time I can help someone, and make a save, correct a wrong, or write a situation, then I'm a happy cop. And as we move through this life, we should try and do good. Do good. And if we can do that, and not hurt anyone else, well, then... <laughs> <laughs> oh, listeners! You're you're welcome, listeners. You're welcome for maybe two of the weirdest intros we've ever had for the sequelizers. Yeah, actually, from, from my co-hosts. Probably this episode was in fact voted for by our lovely patrons over on Patreon.com. So you've only so yourself to blame. Exactly. This is all, this is all your fault, patrons. And if you'd like to take some of the blame for voting on episodes and stuff, you can go to patreon.com slash sequelizers and join those lovely people and be able to vote on episodes and get exclusive merch and exclusive merch discounts and bonus entire interseason episodes and outtakes and shout outs on the live stream. And if you become an executive producer, you can pick your own film for us to sequelize and an interseason episode if you hang around for that as well. And you also get a shout out like these lovely gentlemen do. I'm going to count Seven. to ten. You're going to tell me where the rabbit's foot is. Where she dies. Andy Steen. One. You listen to me. I got exactly what you asked for. Did you want something else? Michael Belcher. Two. Listen. Talk to me. We, we can talk. Like gentlemen. Josh Miles. Three. All right. All right, all right. I know where the rabbit's foot is. I can help you. Josh van der Sluis. Four. The rabbit's foot's in Paris. You want to know where in Paris? Then let her go. Because you will it's never. not in Paris. Mike Salvia. Five. I can get it for you. But you kill her, you do this. Xenos. Are you listening to me? The only way you're gonna get what you want is for you to. You think I'm playing? You think I'm playing? You don't think I'll do it? Where is it? Where the hell is it? Look at me. Where the hell is it? Look at me. Stay with me. And Jonathan Firth Clark. Seven! Seven! I'm gonna kill you. I swear to God, I'm gonna kill you. Thank you for your support. As always, we very much appreciate everyone on patreon.com slash sequelizers. You make this possible. You make the whole extended into season and the extended seasons now we've been doing for three seasons oh my god the new format has been around for so long it feels it still feels new to me but i know we've been doing this for so long now and this new and latest iteration of the sequelizers that is bigger and more powerful than ever is all thanks to the lovely support from the people on our patreon page so you can thank them for this episode because they voted for opening scenes 
which I think is a very interesting choice. What were they up against uh, for the vote, gentlemen? Opening scenes, and closing scenes, and post-credit scenes. Ah, there you go. So uh, people want to talk about it. Was, it was quite about... close between all three of them. Before yeah, this. yeah, it was quite. It was one of the tightest because we often get on our Patreon things, you get one clear winner where. It's clear our audience is very interested in one particular topic or one of the films that is picked here. And it was actually a fairly even split, which was nice to see. But uh, mm. yeah, the the season nine vote is already here. It's it's looming upon us. Season nine is looming. We're already halfway through the interseason. And yeah, this is voted for. And if you'd like to join us, you can vote as well coming up in the season and future interseasons. It's going to be going to be a lot of fun. But let's talk about some opening scenes, shall we? Because yeah. there's, there's a lot to talk about. It seems like a kind of, oh yeah, it's an easy, obvious topic. And I think a few of the topics we've done on in-season seem like, a, oh, we'll, we'll bash this out in 45 minutes kind of thing. Oh no, not us. We like to do a three-hour recording session for just talking about accents in films or just talking about <laughs> something very, very simple. Or we go very wide and like, let's talk about the entire history of Studio Ghibli, for example. Or we go for something like, Opening scenes, something a little bit interesting, a little bit different. People often talk uh, sort of in, in writing circles about how hard it is to get the start of your novel right. And it's something that writers labour over a lot. Um, and I think that films are kind of similar in that. Everybody, especially when you're doing, in, you're in the screenwriting part of the equation, everybody wants to grab you from page one. Um, and I think, you know, for the most part, although obviously this is changing as the way we consume films is changing, you know, the idea is if you if you sat down in the cinema, you've pro- you've already get you've you've paid your money, you know, so it kind of yeah. doesn't matter so much if the if the opening scene doesn't blow your socks off. But a, it's nice to hook the audience from the word go and go like, hey, wake up, this is going to be good. But also, I guess it's kind of becoming more important almost in the world of you know streaming and things going straight to digital distribution. Because if that opening 10, 15 minutes of film doesn't grab you, you might just stop it. You might just turn it off. I have done that. It's very rare that I stop a film once I've started, but I, I've done it more recently than I ever have in the past um, because, you know, there's, there's, there's so little kind of investment if, you're not, if you haven't paid for the ticket price and gone to the cinema. If you're just watching something on Netflix... And you decide, yeah, I'll give Michael Bay one more chance and put on Six Underground and then start having a migraine and go, fuck this. Um, it's more effort to walk out of a cinema than it is just turn something off on your TV. Exactly. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. So, so some could argue that opening scenes are becoming more important uh, as, t- as time goes on. The, there used to be an old uh, Hollywood adage that if you don't have them in the first 30 minutes, you'll never have them at all. And I think Tim's right. You've, they've just halved it. It needs to be with you. Don't have that attention minutes, spans have shortened. You you need to catch yeah. us, motherfuckers. <laughs> and weirdly enough, I think that's also true in podcasting as well. I think a lot of people like discover a new podcast or hear a clip or you know we post those teaser clips to to our social media and stuff. And if we don't grab you with that little teaser clip of like, oh, this is what they're talking about. Oh, that's interesting. Or we get you know a particular well, group of fans or whatever like descend upon us as as has happened before, capturing them with little teasers like. You know, we talked about trailers in the past and that and that kind of thing. The opening scene is essentially setting the rest of the film up, and like you said, Tim, with streaming services and the ease of just being like, 
you spend almost more time scrolling through the streaming service than you do actually watching the film. You find yourself just like, oh, I do I an action comedy or do I fancy very specific 18th century romance? Like, no, not really. Like, scrolling through. And then the categories get more and more specific as you go and you finally settle on something and you're like, actually, no, I'm not. I'm really not in the mood for this. Let's try something else. And I come back out again. It's like, oh, my God. Or it has that banger of an open scene and you're like, Oh, oh, okay. You, in the words of uh, the Leonardo DiCaprio's character in Django Unchained, you have my curiosity. Now you have my attention. <laughs> like you get that, leads you in with like a description on the streaming service or whatever it is, or a poster or whatever it may be, and then they get you with that opening scene. I think it's yeah, like you said, more important now than ever. Uh, but especially they've actually um, mirrored that, as you say earlier, with trailers. You now get like this pre-trailer. Oh, for the trailer to make sure you don't a, a tease of a tease of a teaser <laughs> yeah. trailer because obviously the, the, the teaser the, the... comes out in three days you're like what i don't <laughs> well even like if you've got a tra- if you've got a trailer on social media like uh in uh, instagram or facebook or even youtube it'll go the trailer starts now and then you have the actual trailer start and you're like what was this and it's like, yeah you skipped it they play they play the entire film in super super fast mode <laughs> and then yeah. the trailer starts. Here's the three beats, and the trailer starts. So the film is is a, is a weird one because there's a a lot of examples of, I mean, just to contradict what was said earlier. Some people saying like you know the way you start a novel or a book or a uh, a narrative story Podcast. is sometimes the most difficult thing to do. Mm-hmm. But the truth is, and it's definitely one people focus on the most. Sometimes it's the the easiest one to start. And you're like. Because it's, it's got all the intrigue. It doesn't actually have to be the main character showing. It could be setting up the world, the environment, the characters, a precursor thing, a flashback, and everything. We've got all, all these things later, don't worry. But it can be something that isn't necessarily related to what you think of as the film later. And that's why a lot of these things tend to be the, like the, some of the, like the best opening scenes is the best thing about that fucking movie. And the rest of it's just, <laughs> yeah, it's fine. But I would say, I would say, that a lot of scripts have fantastic openings that are interesting and bold and strong and clever until a couple of producers see it. And if a couple <laughs> of producers see it, suddenly it's like, what, why isn't, what's, what's happening? I don't, I don't understand who, who is it, what, what's going on? And then suddenly you need like another five fucking openings beforehand. And we get, as we discussed at the start of the end of the season, a John Carter situation where it starts straight off with Mars. And you're like, don't, don't start here. This is not a good place to start. <laughs> start with John. So because when we, see Mars with him, it makes more fucking sense. That kind of stuff. Um, or you have like, this doesn't, this isn't working for me. Put in the big, put in a big action sequence now. It's like, I, I can't, that's ruining the whole pace of the film. I don't really want that. Doesn't matter. The audience will be bored by then. That kind of thing. So there are times when it's a really smart thing to do to, as you say, hook them right from the get go. And other times you want to sort of sidle up to them a little bit and say like, hi, we're going to set the film. Okay. Are we, have, we, have we started? Are we, or is this part of it? let's just let's wait and see and it's like oh okay <laughs> oh god this is part of the film <laughs> that kind of thing yeah i think it's it's interesting you say like there's the chance to do something different in the opening uh, it's it kind of works in the same way that like there's a tendency for action scenes in the second act tend to be better than action scenes in the third act because by the third act you know that the the good guys are going to win you know that if it's your final action scene, you kind of know that the villain is going to get defeated, unless you're watching something that's that's willing to subvert those tropes. But in the second act, you're like, oh well, you know, he still needs to like there needs to be a big setback before 
you know, before we get to the end of the film. So so there's there's more stakes essentially, even though it might not be the big finale action scene. There's more there's more room. There's more you know space in the film for something to go wrong, and it's kind of the same with the opening of the film. Openings tend, broadly speaking, like most trailers tend to show you kind of the stuff from the meat of the film, and the opening is often something different because it's you know it, because they are you know they they're doing something a little off kilter maybe to kind of get you into the film and so it tends to be stuff you haven't seen before if you've been following the 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 promotion the marketing of a film and yeah it's it's an opportunity to you know maybe approach this subject you know sideways like you say put the spotlight on someone who's not actually the hero but is a way into the world because essentially you know that's the the opening scene doesn't necessarily have to introduce the hero but it has to introduce both ideally it has to introduce the world of the film and the kind of thematic scope of the film it has to say like okay we may not even have met your hero yet but here is an idea about the the themes we're going to be dealing with the emotions we're going to be hitting the tone that we want you to get on board with that literally is exactly it. The four things I think <laughs> of when you introduce the start of a film is hero, villain, setting, tone. Yep. One of those things. You don't do all of them, but your film should be Ideally introducing one or one two of, of them. Yeah, 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 precisely. And it will. And if all the big ones, all the best ones you can think of, you thought, oh wow, if, it's like, but did you see a main character? Yeah, and you know, and then the hero comes in, and their eyes come into silhouette from shadow. Fucking great. Oh, that's I know. That's my hero. That's how films going to start. Or even anti-hero, or the protagonist, shall we say. If it's a if it's a villain, you're like, oh, they do a dastardly thing. Oh, fuck, there's someone to be met, not to be mm. trifled with. It yeah. sets that the threat is going. Um, you have the setting, which is like, here's what we're going to be showing off and establishing as where the story takes place, or the tone, as you say, the thematics. What is the principle of what this story is about? And then you get that a lot with horror. You tend to get the first kill, as it were. It's not usually the main character. It's not even really the villain. Sometimes it's just the the feeling of suspense and despair. That that tonality. Of, this is what you can expect going in. Interestingly, we've touched upon this a little bit because we talked about Bond in his various forms throughout the years in, in earlier episodes. Whenever I think opening scene, I think cold open. And for those of you who don't know, that is where you, another phrase for it is in media res, where you are, you are basically thrown into the action. And this is your main character, in this case, in my example, James Bond, mid-mission. And you're literally like, the famous example is Roger Moore on the on this with the ski snope and the the snowmobile and all that kind of stuff. Like you don't know what's going on, and then a guy just starts skiing down a slope. You're like, oh my god, we're in the middle. Of, the action scene is right now. It's happening right in front of your face. And then eventually you get to the opening credits. Another thing we've talked about previously on the show as well, talking about credit scenes and all that kind of stuff. You're thinking about this is an action spy thriller. You know, this is Roger Moore's Bond. This is Daniel Craig's Bond. We're going straight in. And in fact, the different Bonds and their opening scenes and often cold opens are able to set different tones or establish different villains or establish that type of Bond as the character. Like Daniel Craig's opening scene sets the tone for Craig's Bond being like, this ain't Pierce Brosnan, motherfucker. This, this, <laughs> there ain't no invisible cars and bullshit. We are grounded. This is black and white. This is this is dark <laughs> this is and a, grim. This is a man beating up another man in a public toilet. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. I, I would say, however, I and this maybe we'll, maybe we'll just circle this for a second. I think, and did we discuss this in a Bond episode? I don't know if we did in our two Bond episodes. Go back and listen to him. Please correct me if I'm wrong. 
I think the best Bond cold open is in fact Goldeneye. Yeah. I very nearly picked Goldeneye. Goldeneye for, is a great choice. Yeah. My You see a plane, my... you think, oh, is it a plane? It's like, nope, man, Bungie jumps off a fucking dam. You're like, holy shit! Yep. Goes in, meets Iconic. up another agent. Oh, 006. Then finally, all goes to shit. He, he escapes off, off the runway, tries to catch the plane, gets in the plane. <laughs> Goldeneye's like, this is, this is, I don't think the movie, I mean, the movie's, I think Goldeneye's great, but I think it's, I think that's fantastic. It's one of the best Bond openings genuinely ever. Agreed. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And I think yeah. a lot of that kind of action, spy, thrillery kind of stuff mm. really benefits from getting that cold open, getting that, you're straight into the middle of the action. You get an idea of what to expect. And because I think a lot of people from the other side, I think you take something like Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy, for example, keeping, mm, with, the, keeping yeah. with the spy theme here, that is such a different approach to, to the spy genre. We've talked about the Bourne films before in a previous episode. We've talked about Bond before. You go straight in with the action and you understand this is grounded, this is real, or this is wacky bullshit in terms of Roger Moore and some of the Brosnan stuff. <laughs> and then, like you said, Goldeneye is a bit of a masterpiece. And so, as also as you touched on earlier, Tim, like that is some of the best bits of the movie is the epic dive off the dam. And like when you think of Goldeneye, that's one of the first things I think of is that scene. Mm -hmm. And not just because it's first, just because it is so visually striking. And it's not necessarily front-loading, but like having something that is visually interesting, and as you said, Matt, does one of those four things to set up the rest of the film, is so important and so key for grabbing mm -hmm. my attention. I don't think I've ever walked out of the cinema, but I've thought like, oh God, what am I in for now? Or in the case of Matt and I watching Cats together, <laughs> what, the, what the fuck is this? That when it descends into it, we'll we'll do an episode on cats. We promise. <laughs> I, I Tim has not yet seen cats, and Matt and I saw cats together, and I mm -hmm. basically haven't stopped talking about cats since. <laughs> and I'm determined, determined to show. We Tim. call him Jellical Jack now. Thank you. Yes. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, and that opening scene, unfortunately, does set the tone for the rest of the film because it is like this horrific atonal descent into madness where you're not sure who, who's human and who's cat and whatever the fuck is going on it's like, well shit. yep they kind of nailed it because i'm terrified and confused and for the next two hours i'm also going to be terrified and confused <laughs> as, as a very quick similar jump in there batman forever sets the tone very quickly with a similar thing because it shows you it's a cartoon and it's the whole should i pack a sandwich sir i'll get drive through Oh, it's this kind of yeah, movie. Yeah, yeah. Oh, it's it, that kind you, of Batman film. Yeah, you know very quickly. Mm. And what the thing is, if you sink into that and go, oh, okay, fine, you go along with it and it's not as bad. But if you don't, you're expecting a Michael Keaton moment. You're like, no, <laughs> this isn't <laughs> the penguin being thrown into a river. This is different. Yeah, I think there is something uniquely memorable about like opening shots and opening scenes. And I think it's, you know, part of it is just the the very pure nature of for the rest of the film, that you you are within the context of the movie, those opening moments, what you have preceding them is you sitting in darkness. Mm. <laughs> you know, even if it even if it's only five seconds, you know, of of you know they throw up the you know here's here's what certificate the film has got signed off by you know whoever. You have a moment of just quiet, hopefully, depending on what cinema you're in, you know, and then you maybe get the studio. Uh, graphics and 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 stuff like that, but then you have that moment of just kind of like, and now here the film comes, and 
for something like, for example, a Star Wars film, you know, it has that incredibly bombastic opening where it's like... Before anything happens, before you even see fucking text, there is a fanfare to get your attention. Yeah, and and I think that that, because you've had that just that moment of quiet beforehand, it is it's prepping you your brain is suddenly your brain kind of goes like oh it's quiet what, what? Damn, G- give me something blue. give me something i'm 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 starting to do imagine things no 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 <laughs> i need input input is, is it broken <laughs> and and interestingly star wars often then fades to the space like it goes and goes all quiet yeah. and then just you left like looking at space and then you, like so you yeah. see the 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 epic ship coming down and like what the fuck mm-hmm. seeing that for the first time like wait wait where are we what is that thing oh it's a oh it's a spaceship oh it's being chased oh my god we're in the middle of the mm. action this is amazing i, and I, I remember seen there. people talking about seeing that you know in this in 77 and having the having the the blockade runner go past and them going like oh wow that's an awesome spaceship and then the fucking star destroyer starts coming over and you go like oh wait wait what will it still go <laughs> what <laughs> holy shit it, um, this was the joke in spaceballs wasn't it the eternal ship yes. like holy shit. yeah yeah um i'm gonna take us back a little bit just for a bit of history here we, we, we will all think of opening scenes and we will all think of this very distinct period of cinema and home viewing of movies as such as, as you guys have just described, sitting there in the dark, you've had all like, you know, 20 minutes of fucking ads, 10 minutes of trailers, and like, come the fuck on, here we go, right, film's gonna start. Okay, and if you're in certain countries, you get like a, 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 a certificate from whoever the governing board of the movie association is like, come on, come on, come on. As Tim said, a couple of seconds of black and then, right, logos, music, whatever it happens to be, go, go, go. And it starts either slowly or big, bombastic, whatever it is, it, it begins. And then you get bits and pieces. This is not how movies used to be. Movies used to be, here are all of the credits right at the start. Because there weren't, you know, a fuck ton like there are. It's not like, you know, 20 minutes of credits. It was a short, like, you know, you get a musical interlude and you get the credit sequence starting. And then finally the movie goes straight into it. So when it's at the end, it's the end and you get the fuck out. There's no hanging around other credits. It's just like you get all the stuff at the start. Uh, like the Maltese Falcon, for example, starts. And I think you have the, the image of the actual Falcon itself, you know, hidden in, uh, uh, in, in, in the, the sort of black paint. And it's like, oh, it's very interesting. And it has all the t- title text. And it's, that's kind of the interesting thing because you would end up with films also leading into that with a slow burn. You get into this idea of setting the scene, setting a location, getting people settled down. Are you all here? Where is everybody seated? Let's go. I mean, yeah, there are some examples where it just kicks the fuck off. But for the majority of the time, it would say like, bang, here is where we are. Here's where the story's going. Here's our hero. Here's our... In the same way we, someone would go, walk out on stage in a theater play and start, you know, doing an opening monologue kind of stuff. Um, that changed with certain big epic productions in the 50s and 60s with things like Lawrence Arabia opening with a black screen and the music playing. And you had like a bit of an interlude where you're like, and now we're going to play the music. Like, we're going to do what? We're going to do what? Just appreciate the music, you fucks. <laughs> You can stretch your legs in the intermission. You're like, okay, fine. And they get through that. And then Star Wars does the very bombastically bold thing of saying, like, no credits at the start, just this title saying Star Wars and the opening crawl, like the old serials. And you're like, well, that's different. And then the film starts. And again, similarly now, sometimes we have, almost always we have an, a minute of logos. So you've got a minute of logos. Maybe someone's talking over the top. Maybe it's news articles. Like, um, I Am Legend, for example. 
opens with them talking about how you know Emma Thompson's character how they cured cancer. Then it cuts to like empty ass New York, everything's flooded, one car's driving through. Like, what the fuck happened? And that's the intrigue, the question that pulls me. Like, I need to know what. And that's the, that's the, we talk about grabbing people. If you can do that, and like the Star Wars with the, the Star Destroyer, like, where is this going? Is this thing gonna survive? Holy shit! You don't know anything, but you want to know so much more, and that's the important thing about the opening of a film. Now we can, as we'll discuss in a minute, we'll talk about where that starting, you know, starts and ends. But that feeling has to come in, and I think we associate with very contemporary with movies. And instead about producers suddenly jumping in saying, like, for example, Avatar, as in James Cameron's Avatar. Very few people remember how that film opens. Yeah, I could, I could not tell you how that film starts. Or ends, or has anything. Yeah, yeah most, it, most yeah. of the middle is also dances, a mystery. Dances, but... wolves with blue tentacle sex. <laughs> like, yeah, uh, yeah. Fucking Terminator. We all know that fucking film opens. Terminator 2. That's some big future war shit. That's, that's fantastic. That's great. So there are films that go, God damn, that's cool. Um, the Thing has an opening... Again. Oh, we'll, we'll get to this in a minute. We'll get to this in a minute. Well, let's talk about it now. Like, let's how, do it now. Then. Let's do, do it. You, how do you define <laughs> an opening sequence? Because, what we said, some of these films have a very clear cutoff. I use Bond as an example because there is such a clear. Here mm. is an opening mm. scene, and then banana, bum, banana, bum, banana, banana. Credits for three minutes, sequence, and like yeah. you get the you get the theme song. Whoever's singing that, oh blah 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 blah, and there's all these cool effects and stuff, and then you fade back into the movie. Or with Star Wars, you get the you know, the opening crawl, and then it leads into the opening scene. Some films have a very clear way of denoting, like, this is the opening scene, this is a cold open, this is a whatever, and then here is the rest of the movie after that. Some of them don't. <laughs> and yeah. and some, some of the examples we've t we will be talking about later on, as is always the case with the interseason stuff, we'll start off general, and then we'll talk about some of our favourites, some weird yes, ones, some interesting yes. ones, and give some examples specifically later on. It's weird where it kind of just keeps going and keeps going and keeps going. And we'll definitely talk about this later on. You get those films where it's like, is the first five minutes the opening scene or the first 25 minutes? I'm not sure. Because this mm. can, it can carry on going and it could be the journey of one character through particular moments or particular scenes or whatever it is. And then there's no clear, like you could get a time jump or a, like I said, a credit scene or a something or a title card or whatever it is to kind of break everything up. But some films don't do that. And it's kind of one big scene, and you're like, oh, oh, it's now a different scene, and it's 45 minutes into this film. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, one of the ones that I almost picked, uh, I was talking to Matt about this beforehand, was Inglorious Bastards, which has the amazing scene on the uh, the, the, the farm with uh, Christoph Waltz yep. interrogating. That is, I mean, that is that is definitely one single scene. Yes. It doesn't change location, it follows the same characters. You know, all of those kind of things where you you, you might make, make arguments for other scenes of like, oh, you know, well, is it really, you know, the thing? Because we follow him from, from this location to that location. Is it still the same scene, et cetera, et cetera? Sure. That's definitely one scene, but it lasts 20 minutes. Yes. You, you yeah. are 20 minutes into that film before you've changed. And I almost felt like, oh, and I can't pick that because it's, you know, for other films, that's like a, a quarter of the runtime. <laughs> <laughs> I, th I think you absolutely can because I think filmmakers do that kind of shit on purpose because especially in the modern era i know we're talking about you know a, a what 12 year old 13 year old 14 year old movie at this point in, in inglorious bastards however old that movie is it still feels relatively new in the grand scope of cinema 
and people are always trying to do something different and do something unexpected and unpredictable, especially with the opening scene, to differentiate themselves from the rest of the pack, especially, as we're saying, with, like, we now have the options. Matt can go to the cinema once, you know, pandemic and blah, 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 three, four, five times a week. You can sit and watch four or five movies in a row on Netflix and it will just go, are you still alive? Like, uh, yeah, yeah, sorry, <laughs> sorry. So in order to grab your attention, films need to be doing something different. If you're, you know, versed in, in films and cinema and all the history and stuff as someone like Matt is and, and to an extent me and Tim are as well from watching so many films throughout the years you kind of can predict like oh yeah this is a thing i can see what's going on here oh they're doing that thing that's kind of similar to that previous movie whereas if you do something and as much as i don't like tarantino in a lot of ways he does do some clever stuff and some clever tricks with some of his films and in in terms of pacing and editing and structure and all that kind of stuff that opening scene of inglorious bastards it's so long on purpose because the tension is insane. Yes. And the length of it and how drawn out it is is so purposeful. It it would still you could easily do that scene in five, six, seven minutes, whatever it is. Mm. But the fact that Hans Lander spends so much time there and has a full conversation, speaks for like ten minutes, and then is like, Oh, I've exhausted all of my French. And I'm like, have you though? Are you just, you're, it's, it's all this like building up this psychological mind game type stuff that the the Nazi is, you know, toying with these Jews, toying with these civilians, and going in cold. Again, this is a time before we knew Christoph Waltz as we know him today. This was his big breakout role in English speaking cinema, and unless you've been paying attention to you know German speaking cinema previously, you we were like, who the fuck is this guy? And He's speaking French, and then he speaks English, and he also speaks German. Who the fuck is this guy? Oh, God, he's fucking terrifying. He's done literally nothing, and he's absolutely terrifying. All he's done is drink a glass of milk and then hold his glass of milk like in a really childish, <laughs> weird way. I'm, I'm, I'm doing it on the camera for the, for, oh, yeah. for the listeners, by the way. Have, have a comically huge pipe. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> There's this weird, like... The the comedy and the slow pace of it is so purposeful because it just continues to build that tension. And as much as it does kind of set the tone for the rest of the movie, because there are plenty of other tense scenes, you know, with the, the bar and the, the German three thing that happens, mm. you're like, oh, God, oh, no, oh, they've realized that kind of stuff. There are moments there, but I don't think, I think that's the best scene in the film. I think that is the height of tension and establishes especially Christoph Waltz's performance as Hans Lander, who is now like, you know, this legendary villain in cinema, because basically mm. because of that scene and the fact that he references it later on with the delicious glass of milk that he does later on. You're like, <laughs> oh God, he knows. Oh no, he's eating strudel or whatever the fuck it is. Oh God. And then, yeah, that tension is broken once again. You're like, oh, thank God. And that scene does such an amazing job, but I, like I said, I think it it sets too much of the good tone, and then it's like, <laughs> and the rest of the film, well, there's a bunch of stuff that's okay and good and fine, and then there's some brilliant bits, and then there's some okay bits, but that scene is so good and brilliantly paced and spectacularly performed in multiple languages. It's just like, yeah, I totally agree with you, Tim. It's it's, a, it's an interesting examination of what you can do with an open scene and try and like push those boundaries in a way. 
one thing Tarantino can definitely unequivocally be, be complimented on his is feet. His love of feet. His love of feet. <laughs> his absolute obsession with feet. No, uh, is the fact that almost every single film he's ever done of his main oeuvre have fucking great openings. Hey, they're so fragmented in the storytelling and all over the place in general. I mean, Reservoir Dogs starts with them just having a normal ass conversation at breakfast. He doesn't tip. He doesn't oh, believe. Oh yeah, them. the the Madonna mm. conversation. And yeah, that kind Madonna's, of stuff. yeah, Madonna's big dick. Um, Madonna's blue period. <laughs> <laughs> and um, Jackie Brown's just the going through the airport with the hundred and ten street going. Mm. It's, it's uh, just um, Kill Bill opens up with Bill. It's your baby. Bang. Oh and like, God. Yeah. Of course. There's so much it's like, because again, it grabs you. Your... It, it really pulls you the fuck in, and that's what's kind mm. of kind of cool about it. Um, but again, this isn't necessarily true. Oh, so I, I, I can. Another one is classically Pulp Fiction with the yeah. conversation <laughs> between uh, Ringo and um, Honey Bunny. And, Listen, uh, all you fucking pigs, move! Yeah. I'll execute every motherfucking last one of you. <laughs> yeah, that, that's a fucking grab you opener kind of thing. Yeah. It's like, I'm, I, I, I've got you now. You're not going fucking anywhere. Now, admittedly, depending on how you like his films and what his style and there's people's blah, blah, blah. That's, that's neither here nor there. But if you show those opening pieces, almost all of them are very subdued conversation or narration that draws you in think oh, this must be this is fine right and then it just and then they escalate it. yeah they're all yeah. a rug pull yeah um yeah. but it, it is interesting because with regards to where does it start a classic one that people always think like oh fuck me i want to tell you one of the greatest most important movie scenes i've ever seen that opened a movie changed how i saw cinema saving private ryan and you go yeah um that's not the opening of the movie but yeah it is it's the d-day landings it's fucking crazy no, it's not. It's it's an old man across yep. a, a field of gravestones. And it's like, and, oh. And I literally did the same thing for one of my picks. Literally before we started recording, <laughs> I had the words Guardians of the Galaxy written down. And I thought, God, that scene really sets the tone for the rest of the movie. And just like, it's got great music. Chris Pratt's doing his thing. And you're like, which scene do you mean, Jack? And I was like, well, the open. I mean, I haven't seen it in a few years, but the opening scene of them, you know, the dancing bit with the singing into the space rat and stuff like or do you mean his mum dying? I'm like, oh, fuck. Yeah. That's a very good point. I'm like, Wait, which and one does come for? Oh, shit, it is the mum. Di- I don't want that scene because that does not set the rest of the time for the rest of the movie. But it, but it, it shows the emotional importance of the movie. It tells you what's happening and that he's been taken off. Mm. It's important, but at the same time, it's not the one that's stuck in your head. So, yeah. it's, it sets up the character. It, it's, a, it's a as we said, the four things. It sets yeah. up Quill as a character and his motivations. But it does not set the tone for the rest of the movie because then it cuts. Not really, yes. Uh, setting, not exactly because it's on Earth in the in the eighties. Vi- villain, no car- hero, yes. Yeah. But at the same yeah. time, his connections to Earth, his connection to the music that his mum gave him, and mm-hmm. of course the emotional at the end. That that that's why Guardians One is so fucking good. The emotional gut wrenching pep when he's reaching for the power stone and sees his mum dying. And it's like, oh no, no, keep it in, keep it in. That kind of shit. And you don't want to cry and shit. That's really well done. And it's because that opening incepted, like just that just tiny uh, seed in the back of your mind. Yeah. This sort yeah. of uh, Chekhov's gun kind of thing. Mm. But it's an interesting thing our memories do where you're like, if there is a really great scene close to the beginning, <laughs> your, ki- yes. your brain kind of wants to make it the opening. Something great it's in the, the moment. first 15 minutes. I was like, yes, that one. Totally that yeah. one. <laughs> it's, it, if it's the moment where you sit up and take notice, 
it's kind of it kind of is the opening because it's mm-hmm. the moment where you started paying attention to the film <laughs> yeah. and it hadn't it hadn't got you until then yeah. and and i mean matt said it, it kind of incepts the, the the emotional arc into your brain in guardians and it's kind of yeah because like that i mean i can remember when it when when guardians came out there was discussion of like oh you know like oh it's going to be this wacky space opera is like oh yeah and then it opens with like a person dying of cancer yeah. um and and there was you know some discussion of that opening scene but but yeah i think for the majority of people the thing that they remember from the start of that film is like oh yeah he goes into the you know it starts off all grim and serious like he's you know sort of star wars style expanding the exploring these ruins and mm. then you know and then he starts dancing around and it's great fun and then it's it's a funny thing yeah and that is a prime example of like like lord of war has one of the greatest title sequences but it's not the opening titles it's a title sequence it's not an opening scene guardians with the and all him dancing mm. around with the bat and shit that's the opening titles because all the titles are going along around him he's dancing mm. through the title sequence it's and yes okay it leads into one of the proper opening scenes of him doing the sort of indiana jones style thing which again, by the way, Raiders is arguably one of the best scenes of all time in that opening because mm-hmm. it tells you about the setting, the tone, the character, and arguably the villain. Well, not arguably, completely villain. So it, it, um, it tells you all four. And if you can get all four in one scene that is iconic and fun and does all that shit, it's like, you have done it. I mean, <laughs> in a weird way, kind of, I'm trying to think, uh, it's, it's, some of them don't do that are the most iconic ones. So for example, The Lion King in Jurassic Park. Two huge early 90s openers that stick out in people's minds immediately are some of the greatest of all time. The bad guy isn't introduced in The Lion King. The scene afterwards where he's talking to the little mouse, the scars, that's mm. the scene that Scar's introduced, but it's Mufasa and Simba and bang, and the mu- pairing of the music and the visuals, fuck me, that's a great opening. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's, <laughs> yeah, that's iconic. And again, sorry kids, we're not picking it, but we should, but you know. Jurassic Park, however, shows you the fucking villains it's well the corporation but you see the raptors <laughs> the villains yeah it's the humans it's, yeah yeah no the, the 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 true villain of the piece poor health and safety regulations yes exactly Thank you, one man has to manually lift a crate are you stupid that's bad for his back first of all let alone the fact there's a wild animal in there um yes so it shows you it doesn't show the heroes of the character but it shows the setting it says a tone and it shows arguably the antagonistic character i.e capitalism um, and dinosaurs, <laughs> but also it does the Jaws thing because Jaws doesn't show you the villain, but you see the effect. Um, mm. Another great example: It follows. In fact, no, it follows Halloween, Scream. You get so many setups of the threat, but you don't see uh, arguably the main characters. Sometimes you don't really even see the villain, sort of. Well, but yeah, see... I, I think setting up a villain like that, you use horror in an example. Then, like It Follows mm. and stuff like that. Having the mystery of the villain and yes. and Jaws so incredibly defined that once you've shown the shark, you can't unsee the shark. You know that. Yes. Once the shark is out of the box, you can't put it back in again. That is so true, especially for. No, 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 Jack. Jack. Sorry. Man goes in the cage. Cage goes in the water. Oh, sorry, sorry, sorry. <laughs> I, I keep putting the shark in the box in the cage, and the man gets eaten, and it goes horribly wrong. Yeah, shark I'm trying goes to work in the away. box. Shark doesn't come out of the box. <laughs> and then we jump the shark. Because so much of horror is built around the unknown and what your imagination it can can conceive is so much more scary than, oh, it's a big animatronic shark. Mm. If you're not already yeah. swept up because it's the opening scene, you haven't built any like 
goodwill or establishment with that audience yet. You haven't gone, oh, I'm an hour into this movie. I'm so caught up. I don't even notice that there's an animatronic shark. I just think, oh, fuck, it's the shark. Oh, God. Oh, no. <laughs> the opening scene, you don't have that. And I think Jurassic Park is a perfect example as well because you think, God, that's terrifying. You don't see the fucking raptors. You don't see them rip off an you arm. You see a bit or of a face, that's you it. You see a face through the, like, mm-hmm. future weird Basically cage just an eye. An yes, eye through the cage. Yes. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And then the guy being dragged in and the shooter thing. But that man is screaming. He's being dragged up and down and across. Yeah. Like, Holy, what is doing yeah. this? What he's being dragged in. This? And then he gets lifted up and you're like, oh, fuck, where's this? And then screaming. And then, t- and then like, right, yeah. he's dead. Fuck it. Kill the thing. Like, we don't have a choice. It's like, that he sets up such a threat and sets up the raptors to be something scared of. Because obviously you're going to be scared of T-Rex. T-Rex is fucking 40 feet tall. It can run nearly as fast as a Jeep for some reason. And will eat lawyers off toilets. Ter- <laughs> fucking terrifying. You don't think the raptors are the more scary of the two until the film starts laying laying little breadcrumbs and going, "Hey, they're the they're the intelligent ones. They're the ones that hunt in packs. They're the ones that even if you don't move, they will just jump on you." Oh, by the way, they have this giant claw. Oh, by the way, they were the ones in the opening scene that murdered that guy, and they freaked yeah. out and they had to shoot him. Like. They're setting up the raptors as the really, really scary thing because you think, oh, they're, they're little things. And in real life, they're like a turkey size, but we'll, we'll not go yeah. into that. Don't they're like they're covered, covered in feathers and look like turkeys, basically. But turkeys are fucking terrifying in real life, for the record. <laughs> you want to fight, fight a fucking turkey with a giant claw. But it's a brilliant way of setting up things. And Jaws does the same thing. You see, like you said, Matt, the aftermath of that and the the tension building up as you get closer and closer to the swimmer and then you don't see oh big teeth oh a big shark like jumps out of the water and catches this woman and all this crazy stuff mm. it's the tension it's the the mystery there and you think like well what the fuck was that obviously it's probably a shark it's called jaws and the post has a big picture of a shark <laughs> but you want to know where this is going and i think horror in particular really does a great job well good horror, good horror films benefit from really good opening scenes that set up the mystery i'll tell you another one that's really fucking good for horror because again i don't think enough people have seen this fucking movie 2020's the invisible man oh yeah because the horror still not seen it oh god okay i can tell you the opening scene because it it doesn't give too much away there's a very uh, it's probably the tensest scene of the movie and that movie's full of tense scenes um essentially in the invisible man it's a remake of this and it opens up with Something that is very creepy. So this is the Lee Whannell film, I should point out. And Elizabeth Moss is in this really luxurious apartment building. It's like, wow. It's like very much on its own. It's it's, it's very isolated. And she just opens her eyes in the night and very slowly takes the arm of her partner off her and creeps out from under the bed as as the sheets and then gets from under the bed some documents, very quietly sneaks around the house gets bits and pieces, does these things, and they're like, oh God, I don't know what's happened here, but she needs to get the fuck out. <laughs> she needs to get, and because it's a woman, and because we know how these situations go, we just assume, this guy must be a prick. Go fucking go. And there's a wonderful moment where she's descended down into the it's like basement area, and you see this interesting lab, and she looks at this area of a room, and she goes, oh, I wonder what that is. And later on in the, in the film, it explains what it is, and it's fucking fantastic. But the point is, she has moments where she like accidentally kicks a, a dog bowl full of food and she's 
trying to drug this guy. It's so fucking tense. And the scene ends with her and her sister. And it's like, just drive, 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 drive. And this window being smashed in. It's like, fuck, I need to, I need to, I just need to sit down for a second. <laughs> you are mm. sitting down. Well, I don't know how much, I want to sit down more. <clears throat> and then I need to stand up for a second. Yeah, yeah, I need to do something. And, and that's the thing about this movie and the opening of it. Everything about that introduces, again, setting, tone, lead, uh, and antagonist. And it's like, shit. And all of them scared the fuck out of me. Oh, God. <laughs> It's it's a it's a, it's pretty this as I say there's so many things that put you into this moment and that scene as well I think ten fifteen minutes is what we'd kind of think is a long opening sequence um, but we'd still count it as one but in terms of just to come back to our sort of like um, clarification shall we say what defines an opening scene there are many opening scenes that show you lots of stuff cutting around back and forth doing all kinds of things where people say well that can't count as an opening scene it's like but it is an opening scene because it's separate from the movie. And, and almost like, even though there's like, I've shown four or five different scenarios, four or five different characters, you know, you, you can get a montage for an opening scene. Like, uh, I'm sure The Terminal, for example, ha the Steven Spielberg film, Sticking with Spielberg for a second, has tons of things saying what an airport's like and the life of an airport is that open ups, if I remember correctly. But the point is, you see so much, you take on so much information and you're like getting so much of a feel for the crazy, hectic world of this thing we see as a, as a, as a, a sort of a, a thing we're very used to now. But at the same time, can you call it a scene if it's just a montage? Can you say these things are another great example? 2001 A Space Odyssey. Where does the opening scene end? Because you've got the, the monolith and you've got the monkeys and the cheetah comes down and attacks them and stuff and they beat it and, they, and there's and that creepy ass fucking music. <laughs> and then you know, they chuck the bone in the sky and it cuts to the spaceship. And you're like, ah, there's the cut. That must be where the opening scene ends, right? And I was like, kind of. Yeah, that's that's a really interesting one because, like you say, you would traditionally go like, okay, well, we've cut to a completely different time and place with different characters. There's the transition to be between the scene, but the transition is so important. The 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 the, the, the progression from one shot to the next is kind of what that whole opening has been about in a way. You know, um, it's it's what it's been setting up, and so it's like, well. Okay, then arguably, like, the, the next, you need to have all of the monkey stuff and the first shot of the space station. You know, it, it, you need to kind of include that to get the full context of the scene, even though, by every definition, like, that is not part of that scene. Yeah. Yeah. I've got, I've got two which are similar. Well, Wings of Desire is a good one, because it's just a really big sort of opening shot of, of, of Berlin in, in the 80s and, oh, sorry, West Berlin in the 80s. You get so much that it interchanges between. It's like, well, hang on. I'm seeing... It, it, it starts with sort of aerial shots. It's almost literal angels, bird's eye view. Then a shot from on top of this... Uh, on top of the statue. Then going through people's daily conversations and their thoughts. And it's like, but it doesn't really stop until the first proper major scene. Now, two, two I want to just bring up very quickly. One people might know very well because of this show, and one people definitely won't know because probably not at all because of the, the, the documentaries. One is Wrath of Khan. Oh, yeah. Wrath of Khan, I, I wanted to pick <laughs> so badly. Yeah, Wrath of, of Khan, that's why I did the opening title, uh, open, opening quote, sorry. Wrath of Khan starts with the Kobayashi Maru, one of the most important things in Star Trek full fucking stop. Defines Kirk, defines everything, and it shows 
define everybody... Spock and Kirk and their relationship. Like, yeah, yeah. And you so you show Savak at the helm. And you're like, who the fuck is this? Um, how's she in charge of the Enterprise? And the Enterprise gets blown up. Basically, everybody dies. And you're like, oh crap. At which point the screen gets pulled back and it's Kirk saying, "Well done, everybody is dead." And he's just, "Oh, it's a testing center." Mm -hmm. And the thing. And she says, "What should I? What should I've done?" And he says, uh, "Pray, Savak, the Klingons don't take prisoners." It's like, oh, okay, well, the scene must stop there. No, because then Kirk and uh, Spock and stuff discuss like, the no-win scenario, and they have a conversation about his birthday. He gets a book. They go back to his room and they discuss, you know, having, like, um, other stuff, you know, him having glasses and things. It all keeps going until you cut to the Reliant mission, until you go to the next thing. Then it's like, ah, now we're on a different story. Where's Chekhov? Now we're in something different. And it, because you can say like, well, the opening scene is just the stuff on the training room Enterprise deck. That's the, that's the opening scene. You're like, no, because you still stay with the moment. They need each other to exist. It's not a clean break. Um, you get the titles beforehand anyway. That's why sometimes you have like opening scene, title sequence, and that's a good cut. And Jack will do that a lot in his, um, in his pitches. He'll have episodes in, bang, title card, this. I've made a point that this is my opening. <laughs> I love a good opening, man. Uh, the other one's going to write up very briefly is a very um a film I'm always, I'm always trying to talk about these things on the podcast and they can never have a good excuse to uh Baraka and Samsara um and they're both utter masterpieces of cinema but because they're so they they they're no they they're very music based no do, no commentary style documentaries just basically uh, cataloging human existence and it's fascinating and sh and some of the most beautifully shot stuff you've ever seen but the opening feels like it has power and majesty. And Baraka is just mountains. And it's just this weight of, of the human presence in the, in the most uninhabitable places. Samsara opens with uh, Myanmar and this beautiful festival. Cuts immediately to smog and smoke and volcanic ash. And then a, a I think it's a bog mummy, basically, um, that we've dug up and just like a, sort of a contorted face. And it's like, what the fuck is this? And then it goes, title. Uh, and Samsara goes from literally from the, uh, the mountains to monkeys in a, in a, in a little uh, in a hot spring. And it's like, what, it, what am I watching? What is this? <laughs> and um, as with Ratha Khan, it's like, well, where does it stop? It's like, thankfully, with Samsara and Braca, it goes, music swells, title. Okay, right. I, I now know what I'm, in, what I'm getting in for. Ratha Khan doesn't do that. It's only when it cuts to literally another part and it feels like a clean cut. Unlike the, the, the bone being chucked in space in 2001 Space Odyssey, it's not part of it, but it is in a, in a tangential way. Yeah, and I think like the more experimental, even, even in very mainstream films, you can get a slightly kind of odd, like you say, like a montage or something that is attempting to usually establish either setting or tone. Um, I think uh, science fiction, anything that has a lot of world building, often has to do a lot of heavy lifting at the beginning of the film and i think there's 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 a lot of temptation to do you know you there's there's almost sort of the clichés of this kind of like ponderous you know very serious uh voiceovers showing well you know you you pan over maps of fantasy kingdoms or whatever and i think that there are a lot of very bad openings of of that kind where it's like okay you know we're going to have to explain how our fucking universe works before we can <laughs> yeah. properly start the film. Um, I think there are ones that do interesting stuff with that, like Serenity is a good example. That where is it, a good example. It, 
it realizes that it has some heavy lifting to do and so it tries it, it tries to do something interesting and another example of like where does that opening stop like i mean it, it stops when you actually get to the in in my view yes. the opening scene stops when you get to the title scene uh the title the ship. title of the film the exterior yes ship. And then, I, I would agree yeah um because you but that but you've got three or four nested realities like within that opening yeah exactly sequence where you have you have the the initial shot of all the ships leaving earth that's that's built comes from the universal logo you know it's a, a, a logo transition then you have the school scene then you have river and simon escaping the facility scene then you have the operative reviewing that footage and they're all nested within each other and arguably you could say that's at least three different scenes you know and the the the, the true opening scene is the school but they all relate to each other they all feed into each other they all build on your understanding of that universe and so they're kind of all one scene i i think what we're describing here is actually quite difficult because in the same way that whenever you talk to um whenever you talk to an editor um it's 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 very difficult to describe you can talk about you know uh the art of cinema through cinematography you can talk about direction you talk about acting that's fine um the best book i've ever written is in the blink of an eye by walter murch that's that is a fucking amazing book on film editing i recommend it extremely highly it is absolutely essential reading for anybody who's invested in film and the making of film but if you ask somebody how to edit something if you ask me how do i edit my movies i'm like i I don't know i just feel (laughs) it and that's the worst thing you can say to somebody because that means that if you either have it or you don't it's like having an eye for a good Good shot good luck replicating this thing yeah it's like can you frame it it's like again it's deacons it's like I can tell you how to frame it, but if I do it myself, it's faster. And like, oh shit, how did even, how did you see that? And editing <laughs> is like, like the description we described, Serenity is a great example. Uh, another two science fiction films that do the same sort of thing without, you know, technically a certain cut at least. Blade Runner, The Matrix, Alien. And the thing here about the editing, there's a lot going on in all three of them, a lot of world building. And they're done usually with lots of music and stillness, if anything. And then the Matrix has got a lot of, like, you know, a ratty action. It's not, it's not telling you anything, but it's showing you a lot. It's telling you everything you need to know about the movie, but you don't realize because you're not taking it in yet. It's like, holy fuck, what the fuck is this woman doing? It's, it takes you in. No, Lieutenant, your men are already dead. Yes. <laughs> That's impossible. Um, yeah, great stuff. But it's a feeling. The second you go, ah, whew, okay. That that moment is when the first scene's over for me. That's when you when you feel a breather. So Alien pans over a thousand consoles really slowly. You have this, you know, transit like a, a bleed transition of these two things, sort of like pods opening up and people slowly waking up. It's such a slow open. It's really a crawl, but you know when it stops. And that's the key thing. If you if you have that knack for editing and you have like seven bits of footage and you want to ping them all together. There is a moment you have a, a, a pause of breath. Some people mark that with, as I said, like the title card. Some people mark it with um, the music. The music can incidentally tell you because of a key change, because the music will stop, fade down, fade back in again, all this sort of stuff. It tells you we're at another chapter. Uh, like, again, because that's, that's the thing. These are chaptered parts of a book. The opening stuff with uh, Serenity is a wonderful example because it is, as Tim said, 
four or five little microcosms in one big thing. But in a book, that would be chapter one or the prologue. Then you'd get to the next scene. It wouldn't be chapter one, ships leave Earth. Chapter two, we're at a school. It's, it's all part of it. And so it's the moment you feel like you've moved on, the moment you feel something has changed. But for a lot of people, you don't know when that happens. You don't, you don't um, necessarily see that transition. Like, say, like um, the opening of Monty Python and the Holy Grail. It's a very long scene about the argument about swallows. Um, yeah. But again, it's, it's when, it, when it cuts to the next bit, you kind of feel like, yeah, I think we've moved on to the next part now. Uh, Uncut Gems has the, uh, the, the mine um, in Africa where they're, they're, they're digging up this, this opal-style rock and it goes in, but, but it comes back into an the shop. An uncut gem, if you will. An, un an uncut gem, that's correct, yeah. <laughs> a titular uncut gem. But then it gets to, cuts to the shop. I still think that's part of the opening scene. I still feel it's part of it. it for me, I don't think that it's you cut on the rock and go back in again. But up for debate. Yeah, the, the idea of like prologues is, is so fascinating because there's certainly definitely films that, that feel like they have them and almost feel like that part is distinct. It's, it's almost not the opening scene, even though it's the first mm. thing that you see in the film. Um, I, I almost picked Romeo and Juliet Oh, and I was thinking the about one. the moment where the, uh, yeah, the Lerman one. And I was thinking about the moment where the, you have the Montague and the Capulet boys, uh, having their confrontation at the at the gas station. Yes. And then Johnny Legs comes out and is is uh, um King Cats, uh Prince Cats, the, the Prince Cats, yeah, uh, and is is amazing. And then I I actually rewatched that film uh about a week ago and I was like, oh yeah, that's not the opening at all because you have this whole the the literally the prologue of the play where you have the setting introduced and it goes through it a couple of different times you mm -hmm, know with yeah. these different readings like one that's just kind of this straight newscaster reading and then one that's even more stylized essentially saying like hey this is this is shakespeare for the mtv generation <laughs> da, 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 da. and it cuts the whole thing yeah. and you cut to like helicopters in the sky people in cars it's like what the fuck is going on train spotting yeah. is a similar thing where you're like, mm. there's a lot to juggle here. Has the film started yet? I feel like <laughs> I feel like we're watching a preview during this movie. I'm I'm very at least with musicals, you get like a clear cut of like the song is over now. We're we're good to start now. Sound and music starts. She sings about the fucking hills. Then she stops. Great, we're done. <laughs> La La Land. They're all stuck in traffic. Now they're not. Good. We're done. Moving on. It's it's clean because again you've got those musical beats. You have the idea of that feeling. We're now moving on to the next part of the story. There are also other things, obviously, we haven't discussed, like flashbacks, bookends, all this sort of stuff. Like, you know, like, like Fight Club starts and you come back, you pick up a back. Like, I think even the line is like, where did we leave off? Oh, yeah. I think it was about here. Ah, yeah. oh. uh, flashback humor. There it is, exactly. Mm. Uh, Sunset Boulevard starts at the end of the story with the body floating in the pool. Um, there's tons. And then again, it's, it's always fascinating to me how you have some that are so fast and erratic like Romeo and Juliet light train spotting they're just packing so much stuff and some that are so fucking slow in a weird way like the Flowers of, Sh Flowers of Shanghai is amazing for that shit it's one shot like eight minutes long um, Once Upon a Time in the West is painfully slow waiting for Charles Bronson at a station um, for literally the whole you know just for it's like we're shy one horse like no nope, you brought two too many bang 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 brilliant <laughs> fucking love it but um, then you get other films where the, be the you know, the, the, uh, like the Dark Knight, for fuck's sake. The Dark Knight's mm, one is, again, yes. surprisingly, uh, it's good because it's, it's, it's a heist, it's tense, 
but it's actually quite slow in what it's doing. It's like, where's the Batman? Well, where, where's Batman? Why, <laughs> yeah, why am I not seeing a boy rising no in a, in a, yeah, in exactly. a circle of bats? <laughs> That's how you open a Batman movie, right? <laughs> Thanks, Snyder. I, uh, yeah, I, I again almost picked the Dark Knight, and I think it's an interesting one because it's when it's when Nolan first starts using IMAX. Mm. which kind of forces him to make his shots a bit more interesting. Yeah. <laughs> um, and it's also, I think, I don't know if it's an editing thing, mm-hmm. but latter, the, 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 the more and more Nolan goes on, he, he loves to cut his films to the bone. And like anything that's vaguely expositional... <laughs> kind of even though he loves exposition but he cuts it so quick that you've really got to be paying attention for everything and i feel like that opening heist is kind of the first time that starts rearing its head um mm. like the bits where like the, the the guy gets electrocuted like going into the vault and stuff like that and like if you're not paying attention during that opening scene it's very easy to miss some of those moments yes yeah, like, they don't how, weren't there more of these guys yeah yeah and it doesn't it doesn't linger on anything at all um and it's a it's a fantastic yeah. scene and like I mean perfect introduction to, to yeah. Heath Ledger's Joker. But N- Nolan's quite yeah, unapologetic I... with that stuff. I should admit, like Dunkirk and and Inception, same sort of thing where it's like you're running from from the Nazis, bang bang. You never see them, but they're coming. <laughs> Bullets whipping past. Uh, Inception. He's on a beach talking to an old man. Where's this going? And then it cuts back to an earlier conversation, which is a, all this. It's like if you're not paying attention, you're going to be lost very quickly. And something I know we've talked about before a couple of times, I can't remember which episode or on a live stream or whatever we're talking about, it's becoming more and more common for the release of, here's the opening seven to ten minutes of the movies. You get this on YouTube. And the first example I remember of that, and we've talked about it before, we've in fact fixed it on the show. I (laughs) have fixed this movie before, is Dark Knight Rises. Oh, fuck me. I remember that being a thing where everybody's like, oh my god. You can see the opening scene of the new Batman movie. I can't remember which film it was paired with. Can't, can't hear it very well, but you can see it. <laughs> Why'd you shoot him? <laughs> and then they completely overcorrected and fucking ADR Tom Hardy's voice to fucking <laughs> made him sound terrible and made me hate that movie. Yeah, but he's a but, big guy for you. Yeah. yeah. He's a big guy for you. That <laughs> fucking dialogue. It's so weird. But that opening scene, the, the plain Bane release thing, like, is such a visually striking thing. And it's so Nolan. He's so yeah, yeah. clearly, we actually flew an actual plane and dangled another plane from a real plane and blew up a plane. Like, wait, any green, green screen is like, no, no, no. They're really in a plane yeah. in real life and people are hanging out of it. And explosions are actually happening and all this kind of stuff. And it sets not necessarily the tone, but like the approach. If you've never seen a Batman Nolan movie before, this is grounded real shit and, and you you're you're gonna get, you know, stuck into some it's not big cartoony mm. bat nipples everywhere and people wearing blue face paint and all this kind of stuff. It's yeah. just a really bad ADR'd guy in a mask instead, mm. who for some reason in the final version has a mask and a hood on. And still sounds crystal clear for some reason. <laughs> like That's the right moment when, you. when he should sound fucking muffled. And yeah. it sounds like he's right up in your ears doing ASMR. <laughs> and you're like, whoa, this is so weird. 
But yeah, that that See, is one of the opening scenes that always makes me think of like, oh yeah, they just released the opening scene. How weird. And that's become such a trend now. You'll get it released mm. to fucking IGN or Empire or whoever it is, and they'll have it on their YouTube channel. Like, here's the opening seven to ten minutes, whatever the opening scene is. I'm like, cool. I mean, I'll just... If I'm going to go see this movie, I'll go see this movie. Like, Yeah, I don't need the teaser. I'm good. I've seen the trailer. I've seen the teaser for the teaser. I've seen the teaser. I've seen the trailer. I've seen the second trailer and the third trailer. I don't <laughs> also need the opening ten minutes. Yeah. Like, fuck's sake. <laughs> see, see, one where I'm glad they did that uh, is... Uh... Baby Driver, because mm. the opening scene is the only part of that film I that's like. The best, that's the <laughs> best, the far the best bit of that film for sure, for sure. Yeah, yep. I yep. agree. And the whole thing's on YouTube, <laughs> put up there by the studio. Yeah, it's great. Yeah, yep. I think I think it's interesting because I, I, I mean, I mean, very recently Black Widow's opening I think is fantastic. The opening of that movie is really good because it doesn't it stands separate from the movie itself and feels really tense. But mm. that's also because. Marvel different. We'll get onto that later. Don't worry. We are going to talk about MCU stuff once we're back in the room together. When, when we'll pandemic soon. permits, we'll be soon. Be soon, 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 soon. We're, we're nearly all vaccinated. We'll be there soon. Mm. Just with Nolan for a second, he's one of those great examples of like, oh, he does, he does this. It's like, yeah, he's doing the Bond thing. He still wants to do a Bond film other than Interstellar. So you get the cold open. So with Inception, for example, as I said earlier, you've got him on the beach with Saito, and it's like, oh yes, this is how it is. And okay, I'm uh, uh, old men waiting for me, and then it cuts to them. In a younger time, that's all still the cold open. That's all still the opening scene. Yeah, yeah. It's only when they get pulled out, and after the helicopter scene that explains what Inception is, and then they go to France. That shit is where it starts to get less out of the opening scene. And that's like, well, no, no, no. It must be because they get. And it's like, no, because as Tim said earlier, with it, you're in multiple realities, but you're still in the same beat. The action beat is still there. It's when they get off the train and he checks his like, oh, check my, 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 um, my wrist has been tampered with. Things like that, for example, that's where you know it stops because you have that breather. You have the, the indicator through editing and direction that the movie is, mo- is, is pivoting. Yep. You're, you're changing, like, it, it, like a train comes up at hurtling towards a signal. The signal stops, you go to a different track. You can feel the as you go over it, but you don't realize you've changed direction. That's, yeah. to me, where the opening scene ends. Hmm. Agreed. Today's episode is brought to you by DB. DB is a Scandinavian brand that makes backpacks and bags to help people on the move stay ready for anything. From the streets to the peaks, DB's gear is travel tested by some of the world's best athletes, adventurers and creators. Over the past decade, DB has designed and developed, released and refined the best bags in the market. With DB's patented hookup system, you're able to attach smaller products to your backpack, roller or tote bag. I don't know if you guys have done much traveling in your time. I know, Matthew, you've, you've been to Japan and you're planning I've been all to go, over the place. going back to Japan. You plan yeah. to go to Korea. You've been to the Americas. Tim, you've been to the Americas. I've not been to America, but I have been to Japan a couple of times in the last few years, pre-pandemic, naturally, and being able to fit things on Shinkansens and trains and, and through luggage storage and like tiny little storage areas in Japanese hotels <laughs> was a real struggle sometimes. Because I was there for like 10 days and had no access to washing or anything. So having the ability to kind of attach stuff to your bag and keep it all like in one place would have been super useful. Yeah. Jack, I've, I've, I've been on five of the seven continents and oh. a bag that is really, really well designed is an absolute necessity. It's a Research that stuff before you go anywhere. Get it done here <laughs> now and go, oh, fantastic. This is my, ba- this is my go bag. This is the one. I made the mistake before of 
doing stuff where it's like, oh, yeah, I'll just wing it. I'll just take my normal rucksack, you know. The normal, I took my, I've got a work bag. If it's a laptop and stuff, it'll be fine. And then something will go wrong and it's ever so slightly too big or too small to travel with or won't fit in this compartment or whatever. So if you are going to go traveling, now things are starting to open back up again and fingers crossed by the end of this year, sometime next year, <laughs> we'll be able to start leaving the country and traveling around the world once again. Get a DB backpack, get a DB bag. It's going to save your life while you're traveling. And we can offer you an exclusive discount of 10% off your next purchase by using the code POD10 or going to the link in our show notes. DB, it's time to move on. Time to get going. So let's dive into some more specific examples of opening scenes, shall we? Some good, some weird, maybe some bad. Who knows? Uh, Tim, I'm going to come to you first. Just a... Th- throw things around and, and shake up the formula. Can you give us an example of an interesting, unique, or particularly good opening scene of your choice? My two choices. I have one that is really pushing the definition of an opening scene. <laughs> and then I have one we, we've that... We've talked about it earlier. Yeah, then I have one that is very straightforward. Uh, mm-hmm. And they're also uh, linked. So... Um, Ooh. Uh, I love it when you do your little thematic theme. I love it. <laughs> I love it. Uh, I'll start with a straightforward one first. Uh, and my choice for that is Mission Impossible 3. Ooh, nice. Uh, by J.J. Abrams. <laughs> um, and I think we talked earlier about the how action films, spy films in particular, uh, are often defined by their opening scenes setting the tone, setting the stakes. Mission Impossible is kind of the closest we've got to an American version of James Bond at this point. There were arguments at certain times that Bourne was the equivalent. I think the Mission Impossible films, especially now, they they kind of went through a lull, but I think Mm. now we've got to a point where, no, these these are really impressive films with action scenes that are yeah basically unrivaled elsewhere yeah. in cinema gadgets rather than tech as well separates mission impossible from born because it's the whole mm. like tech in the in born entity is like cameras and phones and shit mm. it, it, in mission impossible it's these perfectly crafted masks yes. and you know a, a giant projector you push down a hallway to say oh look here's what's behind me kind of thing, which is basically an invisible car but we won't go into that yeah I don't think the uh, Mission Impossible doesn't always have the best opening scenes, but it often does. It often does interesting stuff, and I think mm. the best. And I, I, some people don't care for Mission Impossible Three. Hello, I really like it. You, you what, Matthew? It's fine. Fu- it's literally you fine. What, mate? <laughs> it's better, better than two, though, isn't it? I mean, I like two in its own way. Fuck, fucking hell, man! <laughs> it is better than two, but it's oh. not like much better. Matt, it's just Matt a different... just loves. Gray Scott and his flowing Irish. I just like doves. <laughs> um, doves and slow mo. Yeah, can I say. I mean, yeah. If you want that, you get John Woo, and it makes <laughs> sense. Uh, yeah, Mission Impossible Three. It, it was kind of faced with an uphill struggle after Two was so very two thousands Woo. Uh, possibly the most two thousands Woo. It also, um, let's face it, killed the franchise. Yes, yeah. It, it, it literally was like, no one wants to see any more of these. And Abrams, actually, to be fair to him, did a fucking Force Awakens and other bits and pieces. And he's like, no, 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 I can, I can do something with this. And he's like, oh, yeah, these can be fun. Mm. So, yeah. Yeah. 
it kind of set the template for what Mission Impossible would turn into. Yes. It was something that then then uh, Ghost Protocol would like evolve on and improve, and then it by by the time you got to Rogue Nation, it the, the formula was pretty much set. It still evolved with each different filmmaker approaching it, and and so forth and so on. But Mission Impossible One and Two stand apart from the series at this point as unique sure. kind of entries. Uh, the opening of Mission Impossible Three for people who can't remember is basically a two-person scene. Three if you want to be picky. Three if you want to be picky. Uh, but, but... <laughs> there are four bodies in the room, but that's not the point. Yes. yes. Yeah. <laughs> it is basically a, t- a two-hander between Tom Cruise as Ethan Hunt um, and Philip Seymour Hoffman, the late, great Philip Seymour Hoffman, um, as Owen Davian, who is the villain of the film. I would argue the best villain that the Mission Impossible series has had. I would agree with that. Yeah. yeah. I think Seymour uh, Hoffman is the fucking best. Yeah. In case you don't know, listeners. <laughs> I think Sean Sean Harris's uh, character, whose name I can't remember, he's, he's getting up there. Solid. He's fine. Yeah. 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 Um, but it, I think it's a, a series that has struggled with with getting good villains. But Philip Seymour Hoffman delivers in this film. He is so intense and sort of relaxed in his evilness. And uh, the scene is actually a flash forward from later in the film. And it is that Tom Cruise. I keep wanting to just say Tom Cruise. Ethan Hunt. I mean, you're not wrong. <laughs> you're not, it's not uh, yeah. far off. It's it, potato, potato. Uh, he has had an explosive charge put in his brain. Um, and as you do, as Tom as, Cruise, as you do, part of Scientology, I think. Yeah, <laughs> allegedly, allegedly, in my allegedly, allegedly, trouble, allegedly. Yeah. Philip Seymour Hoffman has, who we learn in the next kind of after the opening title sequence we learn is now Ethan Hunt's fiance slash wife at this point, has her hostage and is threatening her with a gun. And it's basically him saying, I'm counting down. I want you to tell me this piece of information. And if you don't tell me, I'm going to shoot, shoot her. The, the, the countdown is so fucking good. Yes. Like when, when Ethan Hunt is trying to convince him not to, and he's like, seven. Yeah. Seven. Just the, the gun at her head is like, oh my god, he's so terrifying. Philip Seymour Hoffman is incredible. I mean, we know nothing about the film at this point. We don't know who this character is other than yep. Tom Cruise is very clearly, like, in- he, he, cares, <laughs> he cares about her safety. You know, he's, he's a hero, so he doesn't want to see anyone shot in the head. But this is clearly, and, and Mission Impossible 3 is kind of the one where they try and give Ethan Hunt emotions. <laughs> and it doesn't, it doesn't work. It doesn't work in the grand scheme of the franchise. I think it mm. works for this film uh, to, to kind of ground him a little bit in a kind of an emotional reality. Um, we, do, we get very little information. We get Philip Seymour Hoffman saying something about a rabbit's foot. Where's the rabbit's foot? Tom Cruise is going, oh, it's, you know, I, I thought I gave it to you. Oh, it's in Paris. Um, oh, no, no, no. Like, tell me what you need. I'll get it for you. It's so fascinating watching. And I think it's, it's Tom Cruise giving a really good performance here. And you see him basically kind of like cycling through these different strategies yes. to try and to try and get Philip Seymour Hoffman's character to relent as he does this kind of countdown that is just kind of just ticking away and, and, and he refuses to stop, even though Tom Cruise from the very start is giving him the correct information. Um, and it's fascinating to see him alternate between like intimidation and lies 
and basically, you know, breaks down to the, the final point where he's just he's just begging. He's just saying like, mm-hmm. yeah. and it's and it's just him staring into the camera, going, "No, no." And then Philip Seymour Hoffman shoots her in the head, and that's the end of the scene. <laughs> it's three and a half minutes long. It's quite short for an opening scene in terms of like what we described, mm. and it's. And he goes, dun, 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 dun. And you see like the initial flash of the film's like, hang on, what the fuck did I just see? Is a woman dead? Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's not like a whole, oh, the mission was a success. Oh, the mission didn't, was a scrub. Yeah. Oh, no. It's like, yeah. what, it, 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 not it, enough. It, it is a million miles from Ethan Hunt climbing up a, a mountain in Utah and then getting his, <laughs> getting his wraparound shade shot at him using a rocket launcher. So yeah. that you can throw them towards the screen as they explode. It is it is such a statement of intent for the film. Mm. And I think that a really good and if you're dealing with a scene that is just kind of a scene, rather than something that is more experimental in the kind of montage family, the best opening scenes feel like a short film in and of themselves. Mm. Um, I think, you know, we, when we were talking about the Tarantino stuff, I think a lot of his opening scenes fall into that category where it's like, this mm-hmm. could this could be a short film in and of itself. You could release it as in people go, wow, that was tense. Yeah. And I think this 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 falls into that category because it's, although we don't get the information, you know, and then in fact, in the film, you never find out what the rabbit's foot is because it's just a MacGuffin. All you need to know is that Philip Seymour Hoffman wants it and it's dangerous, probably. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's such a you you have two actors who are really at the top of their game here. It is it's Tom Cruise not just coasting by on his kind of like yeah I'm Tom Cruise charisma yeah watch um, me run yay yeah and Philip Seymour Hoffman who is almost always stellar in everything that he does really going to town and giving you a villain that you you just hate and when spoilers. You see him get hit by a truck at the end of the film. You're so glad he's dead. <laughs> um, yeah. uh, well, it sets up because you see the hero, as you said, Tim. Tom Cruise acting and showing a range. Mm. He's like he does the whole like, oh, did I? Uh, oh, it's it's. Uh, I'm going to charm you. It's over here. Mm. And Pelosi Moffat's like, no, you're lying. It's not. It's not there. No, it's, it's not in Paris. Paris. It's not in Paris. And it's like, oh, okay, oh, okay. And then he, he fires a shot. Like, oh, I'm gonna, I'm gonna kill you. All right. Yeah. And it's like. I don't care where we I could do this all night. Come on, Ethan, where is it? And it keeps going. And there's like, as you say, it's like, please, please, please don't, don't do this. Don't just listen, just listen, mm. just, just, just listen to me. And then if you've ever been in that kind of situation where you're trying to stop something that's inevitable and Philip Seymour Hoffman, even though he's shouting and then he's quiet, he feels, and I hate I'm quoting sort of Inception, uh, uh, I hate that I'm quoting um, Endgame in a way, he does feel inevitable. He feels <laughs> like this thing of like, and when, so as the threat is you already know, just established, just the word inevitable isn't necessarily quoting Endgame. <laughs> no, but I, I am inevitable is quite a. a you didn't say I am inevitable. You <laughs> said the thing is quite inevitable, which is definitely not a Fine. quote from Endgame. <laughs> but the, the point is that his his presence and his character and things sets up very quickly that no matter what our hero does, if he uses his cunning, his brawn, his rage and, and emotion, or his you know emotional earnestness, none of it's going to work. Mm. And you're like, oh, you've just touched upon it, Matt. It's the dynamics of the scene where, as I mentioned earlier, he's doing like seven, seven, just making sure like focus on me. The countdown is still happening, motherfucker. We're still having this conversation. You're trying to avoid it. You're trying to block it out. Like you said, 
Ethan Hunt, Tom Cruise, basically just like monologues to the camera at one point. But obviously on the other side of that is Davian, is the villain, mm. is Philip Seymour Hoffman lurking there. And he literally has to like draw his attention back to him. And then he's quietly talking about how he's going to kill her and I'm going to kill you too. And he just does this whole like, He's terrifying when he's quiet. Then he's really terrifying when he's loud. Then he's even more <laughs> terrifying when he's quiet again. And the balancing act of the two of them playing off each other is just mm. spectacular. And I hate to say it, it's the scene I always remember from that movie. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's the thing where like, I think of Mission Impossible 3. I think of Philip Seymour Hoffman doing the countdown and Ethan Hunt strapped to a chair and that kind of thing. It's like, what else happens in Mission Impossible 3? A um, bunch of like spy shit and other stuff and you know whatever. But <laughs> Philip Seymour Hoffman's great, right? It's like yeah, yeah, and it does a brilliant job of like we said earlier. It sets up the tone, it sets up the villain particularly, and it does even set up Ethan Hunt and his resourcefulness and him trying to do different tactics and do different techniques and all this kind of stuff. And Davian's just got him matched. He is just just this wall, you know, not. Not un- an unflinching force against his uh, all of his techniques and his tactics. It's fantastic stuff. Yeah, it's even though Felix Hoffman is like modulating his tone, like you say, sometimes he's like really screaming at him, sometimes he's very soft. He's always in control. There it is. And mm. even even though Tom Cruise is kind of trying all these different things, you see, you see, he he has his training. He knows all these different methods to try and get to someone. He's never in control in that situation. And it's fascinating to watch because we're so used to Tom Cruise just being this kind of unstoppable ubermensch, you know, especially in these films, that to have him realise, and towards the end of the, the countdown, kind of does, it starts to sink in of like, there's nothing I can do to stop this happening. And like you said, him, he gives him the real information, as far as we know. Like, yeah. he, he does actually yeah. tell him, but it doesn't fucking matter. Yeah, that's not that's not why we're here. That's not what this scene is doing. That's not what this villain is about. Mm. It's like, oh god, is there anything? Is there anything scarier than like giving somebody what they want and then just being like, I still don't care and I'm still going to kill you? It's like, oh well, this is it. This is the end. Mm. Game over, man. Like, <laughs> so that that is my pick because excellent choice. Tim. I think I think a, a fantastic, like you say, it sets up the tone and it sets up a villain who is like I say. The, the franchise has yet to beat in terms of just the menace that he brings to the screen. Matt, let's hop around to you. So you talked a minute ago about uh, films that act as if they're a short movie in and of themselves. This is quite literally a short film <laughs> at the start of the regular movie, so much so that it is in a different time zone, it's different people that you never see again, and it is an allegory that explains where the film is going to go, basically. We have discussed in the past on a live stream, we talked about the Coen brothers, their movie A Serious Man. It is one of my all-time favourite Coen brothers films. It is probably my favourite Coen brothers movie, A Serious Man. It is also one of the most underrated and underviewed of the Coen Brothers movies for multiple reasons. But to give you a very brief overview, it's set in the late 60s and as far as this guy called Larry, played by Michael Stuhlbarg, and his his life just fucking falls apart. He's a sort of Midwest American Jewish guy and he, you know, is a, he's, he's a professor looking for tenure and his kid's a bit of a prick and his <laughs> wife is leaving him for this other guy who wants to be his friend for some reason. He wants to consult a rabbi about things. 
He's getting potential bribe money from one student who's got a bad grade. There's so much shit going on. He kind of wants to have sex with his neighbor, but doesn't know about it. It's all these sort of general, day-to-day, mundane conundrums. Except the overriding theory of all of it is about being a good man. About being a serious man. Just a, I'm, just, I'm just trying to live a good life. And yet, the world keeps shitting on me, basically. <laughs> and it's brilliant, and the way it's executed is amazing. Um, Carter Burwell's score is magnificent. The acting is absolutely phenomenal. The tra- it's one of the best film trailers I've ever seen. But the opening, opening scene is a kind of prologue. And it, 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 we could get into this weird definition of what is a prologue, it's a tale, it's everything, but prologue is the best way to define it, I guess. It is set in 19th century, arguably Poland, sort of Eastern Europe. It doesn't really, really define exactly, I don't think. And it is an um, it's a uh, it's a folk tale. It's an anecdotal sort of um, anal- uh, analogous opening, and the thing talks about a dibuk. If you don't know what dibuk is, I'll tell you. So, so there there are three people in the scene, and again, like much like with the Mission Impossible three thing, it's a very small contained scene. Um, there's Velvel, Dora, and um, Title Goshkova. And it's like, okay, fine. And these actors are played by Adam Lewis Rickman and uh, Jelena Schmelson and uh, Vivish Finkel, I want to say. And that's like, oh, cool. I don't know any of these motherfuckers at all. It's like, no, you don't. The <laughs> film opens. It's, very, it's, it's in 4-3, so the film is not in 4-3, but this part is. It's shot in a to really... Pre- to preserve the visual integrity <laughs> of the director <laughs> and whatever. Yeah, but with the, the Coens, I... But the coins, I believe that. And it's Roger it Deakins. Makes, it, this makes sense. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. This is how you do it, and it makes sense. <laughs> yeah. So it's, it's, it acts as, a, as, as, a, as an opening advisory, cautionary tale. Um, and it tells you about this man coming home, and he's really, you know, there's, there's a clear parallel between the two of them. Velvel is big and bright and bold and happy, and, oh, my wife, I went to town, and she's literally just smashing away at some stuff in, in a pot and going, did you get a good deal on that? Oh, yeah, it's this much. Oh, she could have got better than that. My cart fell over, and it was always oh, a terrible time. I was at least warmed up by the fire, and she's like, I don't, I don't want to hear this. She's really not like sick of his shit, as it were. It's the happy go lucky and the, he, and the grumpy. He describes her as, like, oh, yeah, a real ray of sunshine. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and, and basically, at this point, he says, but you never guess who I bumped into. Title Goshkova. And it's like, and she stops, says, no, no, he's dead. You. He died years ago. Yeah. Uh, well, about? I think it's literally been like, like months ago. So it's, but it's the small village mindset of, no, you're mistaken. I met him. I saw him a little while ago. He's coming over here. I invented him over. Why did you invite a dead man to our house? It's like, he's not dead. He helped me with the cart. You fucking mental. Don't be rude. He's coming. It's like, nope, you will not bring this man in my house. I will, I will fucking stab him. I'm not having a dibuk or like a ghost or this, this demon in my house. And then there's a knock at the door. And it's tense. Door creaks open. Velva's like, hello? And it's Goshkova. And he's just stood there. And he's, a, you know, got this giant white beard, he's just staring straight ahead. He's just an old man, but the way that Deacons frames it, the way we've already established this sort of fear of what's happening, it just hangs. And he's like, oh, hi, uh, come, come on in. This is all I should point out in, uh, in, in, in his sort of Polish Yiddish. And it's like, come, come in. He's like, oh, thank you very much. And he comes inside and says, oh, you must be Dora. You look great. And he says, yeah, no, okay. And she's, she has no shit immediately. She's trucking no shit. And he's like, you don't, you don't offer me like a drink or something? He's like, oh, he's like, oh yeah, do you want something to eat? No, I'm not hungry. He says, no, he doesn't eat. Ibex don't eat either. It's like, ah. Uh. And then as a series of sort of tests, and she openly says, 
you're a dibbuck. And he says, wow, fucking hospitality. I, I help your husband. I come in. I, I do a, a mitzvah. I do a nice thing. And you call me a dibbuck? That's rude. Just, yeah. And, and, and you know, the Vevelstrand is like, oh, okay, let's everyone just settle down. At which point he says, well, yeah, okay. Uh, may, maybe I will have some of your stuff, whatever. And she sticks an ice pick in his chest. Mm-hmm. And it's like, oh shit, what have you done? And he just looks down, then looks back up and goes, ha, 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 what a woman. And she says, see, Dibbuk. And it's like, you start thinking, oh fuck, this thing is like some sort of demon. And then as it's like hinted at this stuff, he goes, oh, uh, and then he starts bleeding as if it's like, oh, now I better stop. Uh, 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 now blood's coming through. But it's like, hang on, is that because it was just a, a deep wound that's only bleeding through now because it's cold? Or is it because he's prompted like, you know, a, a, a almost a camouflage style imitating a human sort of thing? What's going on here? And he says, you know what? I'm not, I'm not that hungry. I'm just going to, I'm just going to go. It's okay. And he just walks out into the night. And Velva says, we're going we're gonna to be strung up in the morning. We, you have damned us. She says, no, husband, I have saved us. Everything will be all right in the morning. And she closes the door. It is in of itself a fantastic little, you know, uh, Grimm's fairy tale style story, a cautionary tale. And it sets up the entire tone of what is to come because by the end of the movie, it is the exact same thing of like, you can see things from two or three different perspectives. You can see these things going different ways. They could mean different stuff. You've got religion, you've got superstitions. If you choose to see things a certain way, you'll see what you want to see. And it's acted magnificently. It's deconstructed. Of course, it looks stunning and sort of almost this hazy, snowy, almost as if the camera's got a bit of a sort of warm, soft glow to the whole thing because it's come in from the cold, as it were. And the acting is magnificent. And then it cuts to the 60s. And you're like, what the shit did I just see? (laughs) But that tone, that sort of like superstition versus pragmatism and science and logic and reason versus mysticism and religious oversight and no, 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 no. And that confidence either way. And almost importantly, making a decision to do something and it being irrevocable. The idea that you have set us on this course now there is no going back. But you had a moment where it could have been either way. You chose this path. And that's what the whole film was about. And it's, it's fucking glorious. But that opening scene, as I say, really stuck with me. As, as a solo piece, you can just literally search for that scene on its own. So, Tim, you haven't seen A Serious Man, but you have seen this scene. Is that correct? That's correct. Yeah, I, I will, um, I'm going to put together a, a little playlist that we'll link in the, um, mm. in the show notes of all the opening scenes that we discussed. Good man. And yeah, I, I, I made the time to, to go back and rewatch uh, everything that we were going to discuss uh, Me too. last night. And um, yeah, it's, it's a fantastic, it felt, it felt like the Coens almost doing like folk horror. Yes, yes, very <laughs> To a certain, but, but obviously with their own Coen twist on it of kind of humour and and stuff like that and it, it um <laughs> i said to matt uh, before the episode like you know it's the sign of a good movie almost that i i read some of the youtube comments and they had some really interesting points about how it connects to like the <laughs> philosophy of the film and stuff normally youtube comments are not where you go for insight um <laughs> but uh you know when unless you, unless you want to fight with neo-nazis about shrek 2 yes yeah fucking hell yes but then uh, if you're going to the comment section of a serious man you probably are already yeah, <laughs> uh, have Hopefully the right. Don't find too many neo Nazis there. Yeah, well, I mean, it's one, about, would, one would hope. Yeah, I mean, one could assume it's 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 literally about Jewish people. You're like, oh god, who's going to say something offensive in the comments? And like, no, it's probably okay. Hopefully, 
But then it's YouTube. Give it five minutes. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, no, I thought this was a fantastic, so atmospheric. It, like you say, Deakin's doing an amazing job with the lighting and it feels so claustrophobic. You're just like, oh, it's these three people in this tiny hut and some, like, one person is about to fuck up dramatically and I'm <laughs> and, not sure which one it is. And much like the movie, the way it's been filmed in that really awesome storytelling way, you could argue with each other until you're red in the face, like a religious sort of discussion or debate, or at least a philosophical debate. You can argue until you're red in the face that one of them is correct. But the evidence in terms of what is shown in the film will back both of them up. And it's like, damn, that's some good filmmaking. I'm glad you mentioned the claustrophobia, Tim, because I think, weirdly enough, there's a similarity there with the Mission Impossible scene because it's so yes, small. Yes, yes. It's three people. And another similarity to what we mentioned earlier and was almost a pick, Inglorious Bastards. Yeah, and yeah. The, te- the, the tension and the, why are you here? What is, what is the problem? Like, is, is, this, is this what I think it is? I don't. Where is this Just going? bad what vibes, non-stop bad vibes. Bad vibes. Tension, man. Yeah, exactly. What's going on? And I think both of those scenes really exemplify that. And then the brilliant performances compared to Mission Impossible 3 with such a close space. Like, Mission Impossible 3, you barely see the rest of the room. It's so close mm. on those two. Yeah. And yeah. then compare that to the opening of A Serious Man. This is a tiny, tiny little, like, kitchen, like living room kitchen area like all in one because <laughs> the whole building is so small and it's like the front door is there your wife is making like dinner right in front of the front door because there is so little space and it feels like it's such a small old-fashioned like you said it, it's a flashback into the past kind of thing it makes it feel older and smaller and claustrophobic that just helps to build that tension add on top of that you have the kind of folklore mythology side of things where it's like is this in the past and if you're going into this you know not knowing anything you don't know what this film is about like wait is he a demon is this a thing like is is he actually dying oh and then he walks off and you're like don't know okay cool yeah we'll we'll we don't know but it, it sets the tone it sets I mean, it opens in fucking Hebrew, which which also <laughs> sets a tone because the film is so, you know, it's so de- rooted in Jewish de- culture, definit- yeah. definitively Jewish. Yeah, exactly. So obviously and openly, proudly Jewish. That opening in a a full Hebrew scene is such a bold fucking move. But if the Cohen brothers can't do it, who can? Kind of thing. <laughs> True. <laughs> if they can't get away with that, then you know. But yeah, excellent choice, Matt. I think uh, you're totally right about it being one of their like hidden gems in their um, filmography as well. So, Jack, what have you got for us? What are you What are you starting with? You know, we, we talked about like small scenes and three people and all this kind of stuff. How about like twenty thousand? <laughs> <laughs> all the people, <laughs> all the people, exactly. We've got all one, the... one one woman getting shot, one old man getting stabbed. What do you got for us, Jack? Everything, <laughs> everything. Uh, one Dark Lord getting his finger cut off. That's what I'm talking about. <laughs> I'm going to talk about the opening of Lord of the Rings, The Fellowship of the Ring, which, for those of you who don't know, opens with the whole Galadriel talking about the ring and the journey of the ring and how Isildur gets it and Elrond doing the whole cast it into the fire and the big battle and how Isildur cuts the 
ring off the hand of the Dark Lord and defeat Sauron hundreds of years ago and all this crazy shit. And then eventually lands in a hobbit's pocket. And you're like, oh, fucking hell. <laughs> and that's another prime it, example of that, that breathing I talked about in the editing, because you're like, mm-hmm. shit, there's so much. I'm taking all this world building on board. And it's like, and then it takes us to a hobbit. Now let me tell you about a hobbit hole. And you're like, ah, yeah. that moment. Yeah. It's, it, uh, weirdly enough, there's going to be a lot of weird similarities here. It's the dynamics again. It, in, this, in this case, it's not Seymour Hoffman shouting, and it's not him being super quiet and intimidating. It's going from literal life and death epic fantasy battles to here's a bloke in his house in the middle of nowhere in the countryside and there's such a shift in tone but it's a gradual a a really nicely paced opening moment where you learn so much about Tolkien's world from that opening scene some would argue probably too much because (laughs) welcome to J.R.R. Tolkien (laughs) If, if you don't know what the fuck is going on it's like and his son is Sildor, the third of the blah 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 and the blah blah blah. And his son, Baldor of Isildur, Comfildor. And you're like, oh god, okay. <laughs> but I think it, it just skims along that line because I think, as we learned from the Hobbit films, and if any of you have ever read anything like I don't know the Silmarillion, it can get real dense and real dry and real awful sometimes. And, and when you get really digging deep into that lore. But I think that opening scene in the first Lord of the Rings films, and we all know how I feel about the Lord of the Rings films, I think they're three of the best films ever made, and I adore that trilogy. But that opening scene in particular does such an amazing job of setting up the next fucking ten hours of movies, basically. <laughs> because you're setting up and in not only the rest of this film, but an entire trilogy that is all centred, and it feels like, oh, it's a big battle, yeah, it's about defeating the Dark Lord and stuff. It's like, is it, though? Or is it the journey about the Hobbits and this little piece of metal? It's, like, it, it's all of it. It, it. It's a brilliant way of, look, because when you think of Lord of the Rings, you think Helm's Deep, you think all this stuff, and then you also think of the journey that Frodo and Sam go on together and the personal stories and how Merry and Pippin grow and learn to, you know, they have that final, like, fuck yeah, we're going to fight alongside you, Aragorn moment, and all this kind of stuff. And all of that is set up. You learn about hobbits, you learn about the Dark Lord, you learn about men and elves and dwarves and all this crazy shit. But it doesn't stay too, it doesn't overstay its welcome. And I think it really could easily do that where it would be, you know, an extra, like we talked about, Inglorious Bastards, if it's another 10 minutes long. You'd be like, okay, we get it. Yeah, there's there's nine rings of the yeah six kings of the blah 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 whatever, mm. and it just goes through and gives you enough. And they don't, like I said, a lot of the Tolkien stuff you would you would name every king and his son and his <laughs> son after him and all that kind of stuff. But it just says and the six dwarves and the nine men. And you're like, okay, cool. This is mysterious. This is interesting. Mm. And even little things like that. The nine men. And you're like, well, what does that mean? They're the fucking ring rates <laughs> that you meet later on. And it's all in one big circle, like the ring. And it's a very clever, like, sowing the seeds and little things that you learn later on through the characters and through the story. And I think it does a a brilliant job of setting everything up for one of the most epic journeys in cinema. Yeah, I I can remember going to see this and and 15-year-old Tim, who had struggled through the Lord of the Rings books, Mm -hmm. uh, and, and, and... appreciated them but not necessarily enjoyed them um, yeah yeah and uh sat down to watch this and was excited about it but 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 was also like mm, i hope there's not much singing 
and it it balances that opening so well because it does indulge a little in the in the Tolkien-esque of it and you have your your Kate Blanchett voiceover and you have your uh you know the 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 the, the rhyme of you know the rings and 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 stuff like that and being told and and these quite sort of presentary sort of sh- shots of just like you know here's the nine men who know only greed kind of thing and stuff like that and um and then and then you have fucking uh hugo weaving standing in a line and the arrow being shot past him that just like whips his hair and yeah. then the line of the elves all whipping their katana type sword upward swing thing that yeah. I still don't understand Blave shit that that <laughs> yeah. that and 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 15 year old tim who was who was still being like i'm not sure i'm not sure about this was just like holy shit this is the best thing i've ever seen <laughs> um and and it and it it perfectly balances that kind of like there will be kick ass action in this film but also you know pace yourself um you know and that is as much as that is important no we're going to end up we're going to take you to the hobbit you know we're going to say this is the thing that is actually important you know this is this all impacts it but here's the thing that you want to follow here's the story that you should be paying attention to it's so so well constructed lord of the rings was held up as one of these things of like oh you know you can't you can't make a film of it it's yeah, too sprawling yeah. it's too difficult you'll never do it and the the skill with which they construct that opening sequence must have reassured people who were big Tolkien fans who did come into that with so many expectations and so much kind of riding on it for their own personal mm. enjoyment. Uh, and I'm sure that that opening sequence just kind of let them know, like, no, we uh, a we're not we're not fucking around here in terms of like, oh, we're going to make Aragorn the the ring bearer because he's the traditional hero, and like, who cares about <laughs> the source material? You know, it's like, no, we have a respect for the source material. But we also understand the needs of like storytelling in a different format. So good, entirely. And and the fact that it, I think we forget this. Okay, I'm just I'm going to give you a little statistic here that might maybe shock you for those who know. The scene I just described with the Dibbuk in The Serious Man is longer than Jack's Lord of the Rings introductory sequence, which tells thousands of years of history, hundreds <laughs> of years of history. Yep. Yeah. And I mean, the thing is, when I remember as similar to Tim and Jack being in the cinema in the dark, watching this movie and just the unapologetic boldness of it, it starts in pitch black with whispering and elvish. Then the world has changed. Big long pause. I feel it in the water. Big long pause. Like, what are you doing? People are getting <laughs> restless and freaked out. I can't see anything. And just, I feel it in the earth, the smell in the air, much that was once lost for now, but none, that, that none now live to remember it, whatever it was. And then it goes to the fucking titles and says Lord of the Rings and this eerie fucking beautiful music. You're like, what the f- <laughs> Yeah. Which and is the which is the ring theme. Which I, like the, yeah. I think it's magnificent. The motif for the ring specifically. Yeah. Like, yeah. It is it is genuinely um, magnificent. When you think about how unpopular fantasy was at this time period mm. as well, like that is so bold. Yeah. That's so ballsy. And and then it cuts to the whole, you know, the action scenes and the whole like and firing arrows and giant, you know, say, so, ah, it was all going well until it didn't. Mace gets, well, that Morningstar style thing that Mace gets thrown around like, holy shit. And cast into the fire. No. And Isildur being set upon and Gollum finding the ring, all this stuff. 
and it is at no point saying, now, this is going to be fantasy. It's got mystical elves and magic and things like that. Are you going to be, we're going to have to ease within some real time where it's got like a boy reading a book somewhere or it's got, it's like, fuck that shit. Mm. Here's an old, it's, it's a fucking lady whispering. She's a fucking elf. And here's a, here's a picture, it, literally almost tableau. Here's a fucking old ma- bunch of old men. Here's fucking dwarves. Here's elves. And it's like, oh shit, you are not letting up. Mm. And, it's like, and they're all badass. And here's why. And here's the thing they're facing. And it's like this nine foot fucking chundering beast. And it's like, this is, this is intense. Mm. This and is very not, intense. We're not going to have someone who's making snarky asides to the camera going like, I know this is all a bit goofy, but trust me, you really want to watch out for this Sauron guy. Yeah. That ring's yeah. no good. No, it, it does it like it's fucking saving Private Ryan. And it's like, here's the opening of the D-Day landing. Oh my God. They're not going to win this. This is horrific. But it's also like, it's like chronicling all of that of like that experience. And as you guys said, then you get that breathe. Then you get that pause. You have the moment of quickly like, you know, lost, it's lost. And Bilbo's putting in his pocket the ring and things. And then it cuts to his birthday. And everything slows down a bit. And you, well, to be fair, in the director's cut, fuck me, it slows down a bit. Um, <laughs> yeah. The next forty minutes, it yeah. slows down, and we have a nice Hobbit party for twenty-five minutes for some reason, for like an hour. Um, yeah, but still glorious, still a magnificent opening, and again, it it sets up characters you don't see for the next two hours. I mean, oh fuck, Elrond! I know him. I saw him at the start like, of the movie. Yeah, and like you said, Kate Blanchett is doing the opening. Yep. We don't know that's Galadriel until they meet Galadriel later on, and then mm-hmm. you're like. Oh, I recognise that voice. And you realise she's been around for a long time yep. and she is an incredibly powerful character. And then she gets that, and I will be a dark and beautiful queen moment. You're like, I love that scene. It's oh, so stupid. She's a big deal. And you realise, like, yeah, is she good? Is she bad? Is she this, like, neutral observer? Mm. We don't know, because she's the one that's telling this story. And it's the framework of the storyteller telling the story that sets up this whole thing that is Bilbo writing The Hobbit, the unexpected journey and that whole thing, he is a, literally like Tolkien manifested into that world. And you have Galadriel, this ethereal, one of the most mysterious characters in the entire franchise, just being like, here's the story, and here's what happened so far, and it all comes down to a hobbit. And you're like, wait, what? And that's what's mm-hmm. fascinating. If you had written this as a thing, it would start with the stuff in Hobbiton and it would have been slow burn and people gone, this is dumb. Or alternatively it would have been, my name is Gandalf and I've seen all manner of things. There was a war years ago. But it's not. It's Galadriel as a ring bearer and she's there. And she remembers it. But she wasn't involved in the fight. And it's like, huh. Interesting. Mm, yeah. And that's that. There are so many layers. And the more you watch that movie, the more you go back to it, the more you see in it. I think it's, a, it's a, some people would say, well, surely just the opening bit is just that bit with the fight it's like no 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 it's all linked it's all in, it's all there until you get to Hobbiton um, and it, it stands up now I know people say oh, the CG is aged because of course it has it's 20 odd years old no exactly 20 years old in it's fact. literally 20 years old yeah, yeah. <laughs> but um, to quote uh, Gandalf you have no to day <laughs> well speaking of not aging a day and looking like a wizard <laughs> I'm coming back round to Tim not you Matt yeah I've aged a lot <laughs> Yeah, yeah, you have. Yeah, I mean, since I've known you, you've shaved all your hair off, and that's a Tim. Tim is the ageless one. Tim is the one that will outlive us all and look the same now as he does in forty years' time. It's my he's, my uh... family does age very slowly, so 
There you go. Glacial yeah. ages. Mm. Whereas, Matt, you've got the Patrick Stewart thing. I'm like, this is you now. For the oh, yeah, I'm set. I'm <laughs> set now. Your, your beard will go slightly grayer. and 30s, 40s, 50s, it'll be it. this. Well, I don't know what the fuck's going to happen to me. I'm going to shrivel and die. And <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> I'm editing. It's fine. I'll cut that out. Everything's fine. Wait, well, speaking as, as you're editing, I mean, you said, like, you shave all your stuff. I thought, we're not doing the manscape, Dad, are we? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yes. Tim, your second pick, please, sir. So, yeah, like I said, my first one was very straightforward. Here is the scene. The scene has a very defined start and end. And then you know uh, the film's begun. My second pick is not like that. It's the ballsiest pick of all of us. You think it's usually it's, me with the yeah. weird shit? Tim has gone for something that is one of those really hard to quantify motherfuckers. You, yeah. you thought the Dibbuk was a, as a <laughs> wild, crazy choice? You ain't seen nothing yet. Uh, so my pick, as people who may, may have picked up who, who, who know the film uh, from my opening quote, is Magnolia. Another Tom Cruise and Philip Seymour Hoffman uh, joint. Yep. Oh, yeah, I hadn't put that together. Yeah. Emotionally intense in a small scene, but with a different angle. Yes. So for people who've not seen Magnolia, it is this very sprawling Paul Thomas Anderson film uh, about interconnected people in the San Fernando Valley in Los Angeles over the course of pretty much a day. There are, I can't remember the exact number, but it's about a dozen different stories happening in the film. All of them interconnect but some of them are very tangential. You know, a lot of people are now thinking like, oh, like Crash. No, not like Crash. No. <laughs> like Crash, if Crash wasn't a big pile of shit. <laughs> uh, and the film opens with, and we, talked, we mentioned earlier that the idea of a prologue, and this really is a prologue to the film, in the same way that the Dibbuk story is. Mm. Um, it starts with these three stories of coincidences all filmed in unique ways that are meant to kind of match the setting of, of the stories the first one that's told is in london in the 1880s i believe and it's shot it was actually not it's not only that it's made to look like this very old style camera it was actually shot by Paul Thomas Anderson on an incredibly... It was like a hand-cranked... Oh, uh, of course like, it was. old-style camera. Because, you know, when, you, when, you're, when you've had Boogie Nights be this great success and you're doing an awful lot of cocaine, uh, <laughs> that, that things seem like a good idea. Then you can really crank that camera you can, really Yeah, 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 like, yeah. Okay. You can... <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, it starts with this, this Victorian-era story of this sort of upstanding gentleman being murdered by these three vagrants who are robbing his store. And it turns out that the surnames of the three murderers add up together to make the address of where the man lived. And it's this coincidence. And it, all of this is being narrated by uh, Ricky Jay, who is a magician who has been in a bunch of films. He's great. I, he's great. I cast him in something. I can't remember you what it did. was. I can't remember what film yeah, that was. Yeah, God, what was that? Um, it's definitely something. I want to yeah. know there's one listener out there going, what was this? I definitely somebody on the mm. discord will be like it was this tim god <clears throat> yeah. you guys don't know anything you can't remember your own damn pitches yep um he also shows up in the film later on he's he he's not narrating this as his character this is it's just hey ricky jay's got a fucking excellent voice let's get him to do mm. this bit 
Um, it then moves on to the story of a blackjack dealer and scuba diver who got scooped up by one of these planes that drop water on forest fires um, and died in the process, obviously. Played by Patton Oswalt, weirdly enough, very early in his career. Mm-hmm. Love me some Patton Oswalt. Yeah. Um, and then it turns out that the pilot who had scooped him up had assaulted him a couple of days earlier at the blackjack table because he was drunk and, you know, an asshole. Uh, and so the pilot, with the, the weight of this coincidence weighing on him, commits suicide. These are all supposedly true stories as well, I should say. And then the third story is about a young man who tries to commit suicide by jumping off a building and would have been saved by a safety net below, except as he's falling down the build outside of the building, he gets hit by a shotgun blast from within and, and killed. Turns out the person wielding the shotgun was his mother, who was arguing with his father and kind of brandishing a gun at him, as they supposedly did all the time, and it went off accidentally. And as it, through the course of the, the police doing this very, like, trying to work out what the fuck has just happened to this kid, it basically turns out like, oh, they, the, the parents used to argue all the time and, and wheel, wheeled guns at each other in kind of threatening manner, but they never kept the guns loaded. And it is the young man who jumped off the building who loaded the shotgun, intending for his parents to kill themselves during one of their arguments because they hated each other so much and all they wanted to do was kill each other so he would, he would help them kill each other. And so it, this, this little kind of vignette, this scene, ends with the mother being arrested, having murdered her own son, with the son as an accessory to his own murder. And it ends with Ricky Jay kind of saying this, that basically these can't just be coincidences. There has to be something <laughs> more going on here. Yeah. Please, God, it can't just be, quote unquote, one of those things. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it's that kind of last moments of narration, this build-up of pressure, and then you get Amy Mann's song come in, the title card kind of blooms into existence, very literally, because there's a magnolia in it. <laughs> there's, a, there's a release of that tension that has built up through these kind of stories of quite harrowing tales of, of, of coincidence. It's such a fascinating way to start the story because they're... Obviously, all these stories that, that then get explored in the film are interconnected, and it is about these strange ties that bind us together that we have no awareness of, and also setting up the way that some very weird things happen in the world, and we can't always explain how they happen. I fucking love that they just do a diagram of how he fell and how yes. he got shot and stuff. <laughs> yeah. It's like it's such a, almost like a that is the police trying to work out, like, how the hell did this happen? It's like, yeah. well, when he fell like this, and his mother shot like this, and there's the draw around the circle where he got shot here. Here's the, we'll point to the net here. Yeah. It's like, well, if he'd fallen like that, then that would have happened. And it's literally like this yellow marker pen, like, going over yeah. the top of the screen. It's brilliant. And this is almost the, I guess, the fifth of the four things that an opening scene must do. I think this sets up the gimmick the premise of of the film mm. it doesn't necessarily set up the scene or any of the characters in particular but it does set up the coincidences and the thing that is going to tie this film together and seeing these seemingly unrelated events all coming back round is that is this going to be a film about coincidences what the fuck is this i want to watch a film about coincidences <laughs> and then as those things happen you're like 
Oh, 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 that's very mm. clever. That's very interesting. And like you said, like him being the accessory to his own murder mm. because he loaded yeah. the shotgun. I was like, oh my God. You end up just being like, that is so unlikely. And you say that multiple times in this movie because of how <laughs> everything unfolds. Again, not to spoil it, you, you should definitely go and watch Magnolia. But it's, it's, yeah, it's this brilliant kind of setup for here's what to expect throughout the rest of the film, if that makes sense, without, without spoiling itself in, in a really mm. clever way. Here, here's how everything's going to tie in. Here's the kind of overall premise of this movie. Yeah. And I think it does it in a really clever and interesting way. Yeah, I, I almost wanted to include essentially the, the next quote-unquote scene as well. Mm-hmm. which is this very long montage which then introduces you to all the characters in the film and kind of establishes some of the relationships between them but also doesn't because some of them are going to come into being over the course of the film, as you'd imagine, um, which is, again, just this amazing kinetic bravura filmmaking by by uh, Paul Thomas Anderson that manages to establish the, these characters so quickly and so well um and kind of keeps up that tension that has built up in the in the first you know we talk about the 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 moment where you take a breath is kind of the end of the opening scene Mm. and i feel like the end of of this little prologue that i've talked about you kind of take a you take a half breath but then it (laughs) then it instantly is taking you back into the action you 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 straight away you get the Tom Cruise giving his seduce and destroy uh, ad uh, into straight into the camera, and you're like, "Wait, what the fuck now?" Oh, that Where? fucking yeah. yeah. Uh, his horrible pickup artist character, yeah. um, who's probably one of the best performances that Tom Cruise has ever given. Yeah, um, yeah and uh, and yeah, and then and then you don't truly get that moment to just kind of relax and go, "Okay, I think we're into the movie now." Until the very end of that, which is probably. Altogether, it's probably about 12, 13 minutes long. Um, that's that sequence of kind of prologue and then opening. Um, but, you know, I wanted to focus on the prologue because it's, even though that is, at bare minimum, there's three scenes there. <laughs> uh, you know, there's three stories. They're all very distinct. They have a different visual style to each of them that that they are all of a piece, you know, that, that it is the cumulative effect of those three stories and that great voiceover um, building up to the moment of the title card that, that really creates the impact of it. Matt, your second pick. My second pick, um, I, I, I flirted with a few different ideas, lots of different possible ideas. Really? That's not like <laughs> you, man. I know, I know. Surely not. I'm usually so definitive with my one choice. Now I can't pick another one, guys. Fucking hell. I'm tapped out. Um, <laughs> Please don't ask me to talk about more films. Come on, guys. I can only say Just so run much. Out of ideas. <laughs> um, I, I would talk until my voice was gone and keep talking at you on post-it notes if I had to. <laughs> so the, the, my second choice is just an iconic one for me personally. And for a lot of people, especially my age, who are into weeby stuff. And it's a really fucking tricky one because it's one of those ones where I'm about to almost contradict almost everything I've said before because back to the idea of editing, back to the idea of a clean cut. So for example, 2001 A Space Odyssey, the bone goes up. Ah, but is that still part of the scene? Yeah, it kind of needs it to exist. And I'm going to talk about a thing that actually could be either 
arguably six, seven minutes long, or alternatively 20. Depending <laughs> on where you want to cut it. The movie in question is an animated movie, and it opens with the premiere date of said movie. It pans up, and you see a sprawling metropolis that is Tokyo. Pans up, and it says the 16th of July, 1988, Tokyo. And of course, everyone in the cinema was like, oh, cool, today. That's today, <laughs> cool, great. And what then there's a go tiny flash, and this giant orb of light absorbs the whole thing, and it's gone. Then it cuts to this aerial satellite footage of this fractured, broken crater of a fucking place. And it says, 31 years after World War III, 2019, Neo-Tokyo. The future! Not anymore. The distant future of 2019. Yep. After the, uh, the Olympics, like, oh, oh. Yep. So, like, like Blade Runner did as well. Yeah. Like, oh, it's the distant future from the 80s. It's already in the past. Oh, mm-hmm. no. Yeah. It did, a, it did a 30-year jump into the future, which is now our, our present. And to be fair, they're not obviously right at all. There was no World War Three as we know it. Um, Tokyo wasn't wiped out by another huge explosion, thanks to Esper psychic kinetic children. It doesn't worry about it. <laughs> the point is, you have that. It's like, oh, was that the opening scene? No, that's not a scene. That's that's almost like incidental title cards. That's the whole Lord of the Rings thing. That's world building. You're like, okay, what's the title scene then? Well, the first scene is a bar. And you go, okay. And you're just introduced to this really grimy, rundown, very 80s uh, cyberpunk style nostalgia, sort of uh, aesthetic, as it were. And this biker gang of literal kids starting shit in a bar. And the things on the news about how everything's gone to crap. One young member of the gang called Tetsuo is checking out the leader of the gang, Kaneda, his bike. It's, it's, a, it, it's the most beautiful fucking thing, that bike. I swear to God. <laughs> Tetsuo's, Tetsuo's I, bike is... Oh. I saw a, a, a little um, clip on Twitter the other day that was just... It was the Canada bike slide. Mm. And then every oh, time oh, yes. that it's been referenced in like animation oh, yeah, yeah. and live action since then. Mm. Um, and it's oh, very satisfying. Yeah. That, that, that bike, Canada's bike, is, is genuinely astonishing. And what they do with it in, the, in that movie is, is, is glorious. But they all come out and they walk over and like, Tetsuo, you can't handle that bike. Get out of there. You want that one, you steal it yourself. Because I was like, oh, he doesn't own it, but he's stolen it. He rides it hard. He gets... That's who these kids are. You get so much set up in one go about the world, the aesthetic, what this is. And they go for a joyride and the lights stream off into the distance. And it's like, this is glorious. And you see the, the amazing score kicks in and you see oh, yeah. buildings. I was, and... I was like... The, the fucking uh, Shoji Yamashiro score. Yeah. Because you have the moment where Canada is like selecting music from a jukebox. Yes, that's right. Yeah. And yeah. then the score starts coming in as they leave. And oh, yeah. so good. The and it's drums. It's great because it's, it's, it's merging futurist with traditional. And it's got this very old sound to it, despite, and very, very vocal, despite feeling very futuristic. And you see the drums coming into. I can't do it impressed if it's silly, but if you listen to it, it's an amazing thing. Now, as it's just like layers of xylophones and stuff. Yeah. It's so kind of... Percussion through and through. and weird, yeah, yeah. Yeah, percussion and vocals. And then you get to the interesting point of this thing, because obviously that, that's stunning. It's the night scenes. They had to literally invent new colours to, 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 to actually animate with in order to get it the way listeners, they... Listeners, they invented 
<laughs> new colors for this movie. Yeah. Matt's not talking shit for once. Yeah. They invented new colors. This is how I know, Matt, you talked about it not too long ago. Mm. And I, took the piss, I took the piss out of you for being like, oh, you really love Akira. Oh, you only love one of the most influential, important like animated <laughs> films of all time. I'm just going to throw it out. I think Akira is a really fantastic animated movie. Like, wow, thanks for the hot take, Matt. Hey, but I, I will give you credit Thank that you. even if people know that it's an influential film and people know that Akira is a big deal and basically defined modern anime to the Western audience for the next, as we said, 30 plus years, it still blows your mind in 2021. The shit yeah. that they were able to achieve. Even like, we haven't even touched upon like, during the bike chase, there's like the aerial shots of Neo Tokyo. And the layers of the buildings and stuff and all the moving parts that are happening is like, mm. had never been done before in an animated movie. That level of detail, like you said, the colours they invented for some of those I think it's like the 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 way the lights move and stuff. Was yes, like the first time yes. I'd ever done that, and like the the neon lights and mm -hmm. stuff of Neo Tokyo had never been done on like cell. This is all hand fucking animated mm. in the late eight in nineteen eighty eight. Like yeah. this isn't. Oh, you just get CGI after a building, drop a CGI render building in there, chuck all that stuff, chuck it through a render. I'm not talking shit about digital artists, of course, but back in. <laughs> this time, this opening scene melted people's fucking brains. And if you haven't seen it, it still does. Yeah. 33 years later. It's uh, mad. Rewatching re it the other night, I was still, I was just like, it is incomprehensible to me how they animated this so well. Mm. And I'm not, how, how they did it, and I'm not still making it today. <laughs> because because well, animation is hard, and this is <laughs> breathtaking. I I watched the opening scene on YouTube earlier today. Like we said, we kind of went through them all and prepared. And the top liked comment on the YouTube uh, video I watched says, every time you blink, you miss several hours of an animator's painstaking work. <laughs> <laughs> and that has yeah, two and a half yeah. thousand of them up <laughs> Well, like, there's a yeah, behind the scenes much. image or, or a video, I should say, of somebody and it zooms in very close. You can see the building and they're doing the highlights and the windows and this tiny, tiny skyscraper in the background of the background of the shot, tiny back there. And they're doing it on a ruler. Just That's one frame. It's like, <laughs> oh my God. And they also do 24 of those per second. Yeah. And they're like cutting holes in the frame to shine the light through the light box to make it look like a real light. It's, it's, in it's insane. So this all happens. They queue up for a joyride. The music changes slightly, and you were introduced to the clowns, a rival rival gang. And it's interesting because where does the scene stop? Now, arguably, there are two places, and both have complete validity. It's the back of a Dibbuk thing again about, you know, both could be argued as true. One, you could say, well, they go for the joyride. They get into a fight with the clowns. Everything goes to shit. Let's see, Takashi, the Lesper boy, He's taken away. He goes, ah, ah. the building explodes, glass falls everywhere. That, oh, fuck me, that looks gorgeous. That happens. And then Tetsuo runs into him and they'll get arrested. Is that the opening scene? Potentially. Or alternatively, they go for a joyride and they keep up with it and then they drive off again. It pans up and you see the city. In the same way it panned up from the original Tokyo, you see this sort of ground level, these endless sprawling buildings and it cuts to an alleyway 
and this POV shot of like just almost like a drunk, hazy, uh, mm. separated shot. And that might be the end of the opening sequence. So if you like search for like the opening sequence, that's where it mostly stops people. Yeah, and that that one where it cut where yeah. it pans up to the to the city is what I thought of. That's what people and most yeah. That's why I said the one I watched on YouTube this morning is where that cuts off. But yeah. I think if that makes sense, and that is almost seven straight minutes. Yeah, of kick-ass, incredible genre-defining stuff, and like you yeah. said, man, the fact that it opens with this like, oh, it's today. And like, wait, what? Why is it? T- <laughs> what do you mean it's today? The fuck is this film about? Bang, big explosion, 30 years in the future. Now we're actually in the film and you're already seeing stuff that is iconic in the first Mm. three, four, five minutes of this film and it keeps going and the music builds and the animation is gorgeous and it just is incredible. And the fact that when you see the explosion, you don't hear anything. There's no boom! It's And it's just, again, it's, it's it's a nation who grew up post nuclear bomb basically yeah it's the fear you're living with and it's within living memory because it's the 80s and then all you have is this giant taiko drum (laughs) title card (laughs) it's like what the everything is so serious so when you get the other percussion that's so fast and so uh layered and the music in the in its orchestral notes and the choral notes saying kind of uh and it's like oh they're singing about the characters why 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 do I care about these two specifically? It it's so layered. Just like the visuals, the audio is so layered. And again, it's as Tim Tim nailed it. It's fucking breathtaking. And anyone's like, I don't really like anime. It's all it's all silly. It's all girls and magical girls and <laughs> and is that an impression of my fiance. I mean, <laughs> I mean, in words, How yes. Rude. In tone, no. She's still wrong, obviously. Um, it's, oh, it's all Goku going, oh, I'm Goku or whatever. There were no Goku. But the point is, it's like any medium. It's like a- anything has validity. But, but Akira, you put some fucking respect in that goddamn name. <laughs> it's, it's, as old, it's older than Jack. It's almost as old as Tim and myself. It, it's, it's a legacy that is enduring. In the same way that Blade Runner has like a powerful opening and a powerful thing because of how it's shot and it, the cityscape and things. And, close-ups of eyeballs and it's doing so much akira is doing the same thing but on paper or celluloid effectively drawn by human hand that is something you will very rarely see ever again because who the fuck would fund that sort of thing what madman would endure it jack what's your final pick is it something to lift us up and make us feel a lot better yep that's exactly what it is there's no would you would you just describe it as Uplifting. Oh, Tim, you are a Tim. bastard. <laughs> well done, Tim. Well done. It's a lovely little story uh, about a man called Carl. And uh, yeah, that's it. Good. Sounds good. Is it? Is it Aquatine yeah. Hunger Force? <laughs> <laughs> yes, it is. Yes, it brilliant. It's exactly that. But it is animated. A couple of you may have worked with that already. We're talking about sad and characters named Carl. PTSD sets in for a lot of people. Yeah, you're ready to cry just from us talking about it, ladies and gentlemen. It is, I would argue, one of the best like short films I've ever seen because <laughs> I think this is the perfect example of the... It's essentially a standalone short film as an opening scene and then you get the rest of the movie. I am, of course, talking about the opening scene to Pixar's 
Up from 2009. And if you don't know what I'm talking about, <laughs> prepare to cry, <laughs> to quote Varty, the Bloodborne uh, YouTuber. It's an entire life. It is, it's an entire life. It's an entire story of Ellie and Carl and their journey together through life. And it breaks your heart every fucking time. It is beautifully animated, brilliantly performed, the bare minimum fucking dialogue. The absolute bare minimum. Mm. The fact that adult Ellie doesn't have any lines, yet her death, spoiler alert for the first seven minutes of the movie, <laughs> means so much to us as viewers that people are crying. And it basically set the standard for the the kind of romance stories in films for other people. It became a bit of a meme in terms of like up told a better story love story in six minutes than your entire franchise. And <laughs> compared to Twilight was the example that was around at the time. Like sure. Twilight took eight movies and told a worse story than Up did in six minutes. Because it's just brilliant and heartbreaking and the the visual storytelling of it, the transitions from scene to scene as you go through the ages. And I know, weirdly enough, there's a continuity there with both of my picks in that they go through a long period of time. You know, you, you start with the opening of Lord of the Rings hundreds of years ago and the, the battle of against Sauron and all this kind of stuff, and you journey through to a little hobbit in a hobbit hole in Hobbiton and all that kind of stuff. Whereas this, you open with, you know, oh, everything's going to be fine. It's nice, you know, kids playing together and falling in love and happy times and they're all cute and smiley and she's got gappy teeth and everything's funny and oh 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 no it's really nice they're like falling in love and he's got a job and she's painting and like they're growing together as people and they built this amazing beautiful house together and they tease each other and laugh together and experience all these different things together they look at the clouds, they run up hills, they, she paints the walls in the house and all this kind of stuff, all these beautiful, amazing moments. And secretly, it's setting up with the rest of the movie. He's got his little balloon stand. You see the house that is obviously one of the most iconic parts of that. You see the house with the balloons and the poster and it's such an integral part of that movie. You see him interacting with kids and being happy about it. And then you understand why Carl is how he is for the rest of the movie when he meets Doug, when, when he meets Russell, and the, the whole grumpy Carl for the rest of the movie makes sense. Just from mm. these opening few minutes, you know that his world has already been and already gone, and he doesn't know what to do with himself anymore. And when you're alone, silence is all you'll be has always like stuck with me throughout the years. Such a brilliant, brilliant part of that opening scene that it's just really sticks with me. Though that song over the top as he like walks into the house and everything fades and the colour, almost the opposite of the Wizard of Oz. Mm-hmm. All the colour and the excitement and the beauty and her being an artist, everything just drains. And it's this incredible, ridiculous, garish, stupid-looking house. It's just grey and brown and faded. And he's a lonely old man wandering in the front door. 
and Tim's got a flying ant. Maybe. In the... Yeah, you have. I knew you would. <laughs> I warned you. They're coming. And it's just a perfect, brilliant little story all contained in the opening scene. And it's, for me, it's the one I, th- when we said opening scenes, instantly, this is what came to mind. Mm-hmm. This is the, the first thing that stuck in my brain. It's like, I have to talk about up. I know it's a cliche, but kind of like Akira, it's, it's a cliche. It set the standard for a reason. It, it's earned the right to be talked about, put it that way. Yeah. yeah. The thing that's interesting yeah. about Up as well, and I don't want to badmouth it because I love that movie in general, but the, the, the open, this is, this is the part of the, 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 we talk about, you know, the nature of an opening scene and how powerful it can be and how it can catch you off guard, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Kids are like, oh, that's a bit sad, wherein the adults are roughly like, you know, quivering in tears, it's speaking to different audiences at different levels. The interesting thing about Up, as good as the remainder is, it never hits the heights of the first five minutes of that movie. People, t- <laughs> people talk about the opening. Yeah. Do you remember what happens 45 minutes into the movie? Neither do I. You remember <laughs> these bird. first five, six minutes? There's a, there's a bird. There's the dog that talks. The, there's an explorer guy or something. and mm. what, Whatever. That first five which minutes, is, fucking brilliant. Which is all arguably set up in the very opening scene of the film because it, the the very opening of the film is a young car watching the kind of newsreel about months and his the the, the finding the beast of the paradise falls or whatever yeah, they call yeah. it and his dog this blimp that's all set up for dogs and all this kind of stuff and like you say it's all setting up stuff that's going to come back in the film but then and that's all very expositional that's all very world building like you know like, oh, they're talking about, you know, they're on the news talking about the new power plant. Where, where's the finale of the film going to be kind of stuff? Um, but then you get the emotional core of the film in those, like we say, six minutes or whatever. And it is just heartrending and devastating <laughs> and beautiful, mm-hmm. you know. And I think there's a shot in that opening montage that I always... Like it, when people talk about up, it's the thing that always comes first to my mind, even more than just this this sequence as a whole, which is there's sort of an implied miscarriage or some kind oh, of problems having kids. Certainly, they yeah. have problems having kids, and it's kind of that 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 it, it sort of you know in its silent way, you know, kind of explains like no, there are medical reasons that they never have have kids, but there's a shot of Ellie after that. And it's her with her eyes closed and she sat on the front lawn and she's just kind of, it seems like she's just kind of like feeling the wind on her face, even though she has no dialogue. Like Carl barely has any dialogue in the whole thing because as a child, he's very quiet. I think all he says is wow. And that's about it. Mm. (laughs) Um, Young Ellie has a lot more dialogue and is chattering away constantly. But like Jack said, this, this actual montage sequence of them growing up, falling in love, it's, it's almost completely silent. Um, and that moment that it gives her to acknowledge that pain that she in particular has gone through before they then show, and this is how they went on the rest of their life, having had those plans that they had, not be able to, you know, come come into being that way. It's 
for for a kids film <laughs> it's so mature and so like you say the kids are watching it and go like oh that's sad why is why is, why where's where's his wife gone parents go she'll be like she's she, she died oh that's sad very sad oh look he's got a balloon you know and then the, <laughs> and then all the parents are just like oh my god this has broken my heart in a billion pieces yeah, yeah it's it's a- astonishing filmmaking uh, i think once you have a sense of your mortality the fact that a person's entire life plays out in like four and a half minutes in front of you is like oh fuck it hell i should probably do something tomorrow i should probably make the most <laughs> of it i should probably do something with my life oh my god i need to go and find my soulmate oh god <laughs> Well, guess what? That film was 2009. What do you all do that time? Ha! Huh? Ha! Huh? <laughs> <laughs> that's, the, that's the problem. Everyone goes, watch the film. Goes, You're right. I, sh- I, sh- I need to do something. I'm, time is, is finite. It's running out. It's like, did you watch it in, a, in release day in the cinema? I did. Did you feel that way? I did. What did you do in the 11 years, 12 years since? <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> I've, done, I've done loads of stuff in the last 12 years. Thank you very much. I start, we started this podcast together. Oh, I know, I know we did stuff. I'm talking about, you know, other people. <laughs> you listeners, what are you doing with yeah, your what life? What are you doing? Into this Lord Kitchener style pointing, poster pointing. What are you doing with your life? Yeah. Um. Now up is up is glorious, and as I say, it's it's uh deservedly. I know I know it's about cliches and things like that, and like oh, I can't believe you didn't discuss this, and I can't believe you, of course, you talked about that. It's like, well, of course we fucking did talk about certain things because you know we mentioned things earlier, like you know some people's favorites. Also, of- this is a podcast about bad sequels. What else am I going to talk about? Up. Yeah. <laughs> It's a valid A point. great me, film with no moment, sequel. Yes. Exactly. It's a brilliant standalone film. Leave me alone. Oh, no, sorry, I'm just saying that it, it deserves a place here. People might say, well, that's an obvious one. No such fucking thing is obvious. It's, 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 it's ob- if it's obvious, it's because it's earned its place and its longevity and deserves to be here. I'm, I'm going to throw out a last minute here thing just, just to, to, to cap us off before we, before we close the show because I did this this time. I don't know if Jack did as well, but... Um, do you guys want to know the Rotten Tomatoes? Ooh. I, I actually haven't looked this up. Ooh. Spicy. Holy shit. All right. Weirdly enough, I, I looked up um, the Mission Impossible series, but that was like like 12 hours ago, probably longer. <laughs> so I, I can't remember which to be one fair, Yeah, it's like when we do like the, the, the Rotten Tomatoes game, people say, oh, don't you remember what you got on the episode? It's like, Guys, it changes day to day. <laughs> yeah, it drifts. Well, that too. Yeah. So yeah. yeah. Okay. So what I'm going to do is just ask a few simple questions. We've listed six movies. Of the films that we've listed, one of them, as in, of the six that we've listed, only one of us has two selections, ninety plus. Anyone want to take a guess who it is? First, it's either me, it's either me or you. So, Matt. so for listeners, it's Mission Impossible Three, Magnolia, A Serious Man, Akira, Lord of the Rings, Fellowship of the Ring, and Up. I, I think it's Jack. Because I'll, I'll, then I'll say it to you, Matt. It is Jack. Ah. So, okay. next question: What do we think is the lowest scoring Mission film? Mission Impossible Three? Yeah, for sure. That is correct. Seventy-one percent, and it's again not <laughs> low. That's pretty obvious. Seventy-one no, is no. a solid score. And also yeah, for a yeah. for a complicated, com- not complicated, a, 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 a difficult film, shall we say? I remember the one I do remember from the Mission Impossible franchise is Mission Impossible Fallout is ninety seven percent on Rotten Tomatoes, and then I forgot. <laughs> I keep always forget that means 
97% of the reviewers gave it a 6 out of 10 on 1. I'm like, God, that makes all the sense in the world. When you th- when you actually mm. realise mm. what the tomato water actually means, like, yeah, what's not to like about the movie? It's, it's great. And if you don't like it, it's like, yeah, it's fine. It's like a 6. You get to see Henry Cavill reload his fists and grow a beard. What more do you want? <laughs> uh, uh, a moustache, my friend. So, no, 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 no. He has a moustache the whole time, but his five o'clock shadow grows when he reloads his fists. <laughs> it doesn't. It's just shadow for the record. <laughs> but pe- but people, people freaked out and were like, oh my God, he grows a beard in half a second. Yeah. It's such, it's just such the light, is the power. It's just the lighting. Is that just testosterone pushes reload. out his face? Like that a, is the oh, power oh. of Henry Cavill's guns. That's okay. how sexy and muscular that man is. So he grows a beard spontaneously just by m- pure masculinity. <laughs> clack clack beard. Um, and also he plays Warhammer and builds his own PC. Yeah, he's he's, a, he's all right. So Big fucking nerd. This is going to be a stupid question. We're going to ask anyway. What do you think is the highest scoring? Oh, maybe it's not a stupid question. Because mm. I thought it was quite definitive in my opinion. Not my no, no not my opinion. Because I know critics. <laughs> oh. um, a serious man would probably be my guess. Because if you go out and watch a Coen Brothers movie, like that seems like a critical darling kind of, mil- mm-hmm. kind of film. Mm-hmm. If you've seen A Serious Man, you probably think it's pretty amazing. But Up is Up. And Lord of the Rings is Lord of the Rings. And Akira is Akira. Yeah. Uh, I can... I can- in my brain, I can hear the shitty contrarian critics' view for all of them. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> of people, of people who watch up and go like, it's not suitable for a kid's film. Well, well the the opening's very very adult, and then the rest of it's just wacky hijinks. Uh, all of them, none of them are a hundred percent. So there's definitely at least yeah. outliers like that who are being dickhead. Yeah, I who doesn't like up? Come I on, fuck off, like... fascists. I think. I think Up is the highest. I'll go Lord of the Rings, Fellowship of the Ring, then. Just for argument's sake. Tim is right, it's Up. Hey, With there we go. 98%. Oh, that's a beast. <laughs> that's a beast. That is. Um, I'll just run through the other ones for you, then. In descending order, Up, 98%. Lord of the Rings, Fellowship of the Ring, 91%. That's a surprising wow. drop, if you ask me. Um... Akira, 90%. A Serious Man, 89%. Magnolia, 83%. Mission Impossible 3, 71%. And I think, again, A Serious Man, Magnolia are the kind of highbrow weird where you get enough people going, what is this? <laughs> Even if they're into that kind of movie, like, I don't understand. Has it started yet? Where are my trousers? That kind of, like, well, you know, just sit the fuck down and watch the fucking yeah. allegory, you fucking asshole. You have an opening bit that talks about a thing and it talks about the theme later. And you should get this, you prick. And then Mission Impossible 3 is like, yeah, it's all right. It's a pretty good action film. And everyone has a reasonable score for that. Um, but uh, yeah, so they're all, they're all, again, I would still recommend watching all these movies in the right frame of mind. And as Tim has pointed out in the show notes, there'll be links to just the opening scenes. And I know we said, who watches just the opening scene? That's stupid. You. You will. <laughs> you will go to the links and you'll watch them. And you'll go, God damn, that's really cool. I remember that I'd seen it before. I know it. You know, I know Lord of the Rings first by heart, but now I've seen it again. Ah, oh, that's fantastic. Or alternatively, shit, I hadn't realized how cool this was. Maybe I'll go watch the rest of the movie. Yeah, maybe you should. Or, oh God, I'm gonna watch up again, aren't I? Uh 
I remember that fine. I'll skip that one. That, Thanks that's for okay. Cry, Jack. How dare you? <laughs> yeah, I don't want to feel. Going to happen a lot. That is six very diverse, weirdly interconnected opening scenes that you can go and check out. Go and click the link in the show notes and in the show description. You can find a lovely little playlist of all six of them. And if you haven't seen them already, go and watch these and didn't do the thing that I said I hated earlier. Watch the opening scene and then go and watch the whole film because you should go and watch all six of these movies. They're all good. Highly recommended by the sequels. I do like being able to recommend good films. Yeah, we get to do that so so infrequently on the main season. I like being able to get this on the end season. Be like, hey guys, these are some of the best films. Go and watch them. They're great. Not only is the opening scene good, the rest of the film's good too. I'm glad people like the interseason stuff because if we didn't have it, we'd go fucking insane. <laughs> <laughs> I th- I think I think a lot of view a lot of listeners would struggle with like the not necessarily the constant negativity, but just like us talking about bad films over and over and the over slurry, again. Slurry, endless slurry. Would get tiring for us and tiring for the listeners as well. So yeah. hopefully you agree, listeners, that the interseason stuff breaks it up nicely and we get to talk about a few different topics. And even you get to vote on it, you get to pick some topics if you're a patron, all that good stuff. Well, between if you the wanna... season, the interseason, and the live streams, which again, you should be watching the live streams monthly, you get exactly. such a variety from us, and you're very, very welcome. Exactly. And there is, in fact, a live stream coming up very, very soon. If you're listening the Friday that this comes out, early access on Patreon, we're doing a live stream tomorrow night six o'clock uk time go to youtube put in sequelizers we'll also post it on the patreon you can go to our twitter and find the link there you can basically set a reminder so youtube will email you and send you a notification when we go live and we'll have our first guest on the live stream how exciting is that we're going to start doing this more often as we mentioned and Tim and Matt have both been guests already on the Unequal Sequel podcast. We will be welcoming Rich from the Unequal Sequel podcast as our very first live stream guest. Oh, and by the way, we're doing Kevin Smith movies. So come and join us. Like I said, if you're listening to this on the Friday, early access on Patreon, come and join us August 28th, 2021. 6pm British time come find us on YouTube for our second fully public live stream and our first one with a guest. If you listen to this in the future and thinking, oh no, it's all on YouTube you can watch it back it, and enjoy it greatly. Exactly. If you don't join us live, it's all available on demand on our YouTube channel as well. So, link for the YouTube channel in the show notes come and check it out. It's a lot of fun and something again, different from interseason and different from the main season as you said Matt, we're creating more content and diversifying a little bit and uh, we want to get more people on more different voices if you have any recommendations or any podcasters creators youtubers you want to come and join us on these live streams let us know hit us up on social media we are sequelizers on twitter instagram facebook you can go to sequelizers.com you can find links to the youtube channel all the podcast channels the shop the patreon the discord everything available at sequelizers I am JLW Chambers on all social media. Again, if you want to have a chat with me directly, you want to complain about how I made you cry by watching the opening scene (laughs) up again, please feel free. I'm sorry slash you're welcome. Matt, how can people 
complain that you don't give Akira enough love on the internet. I mean, I give Akira a lot of fucking love. You do, you do. I'm already you married, for fuck's sake. I was being facetious. <laughs> um, yeah, you can go... If I wasn't all married, I'd marry this goddamn film. <laughs> I mean... Um, Stogs, S-T-O-G-H, said on the various social medias, you go to cheeseman.com to see the things I make and go to redrighthand.co.uk to see the things that I review. Tim, if people want to have an opening scene with you and Whoa. start their story with you personally, they have to start Bumble? somewhere. Tinder? Bumble? Where do they go? <laughs> see, scenes of my opening could be found on my OnlyFans, but um, <laughs> the best way to, to follow me is Twitter. I am trivia underscore lad, uh, and you can follow me there making making Jack and Matt fucking hell <laughs> do a do a do a Picard-esque facepalm oh, uh, and uh, and also and, and also you know uh, me jabbering on about X-Men comics or something oh dear well thank you very much for joining us everybody thank you very much for listening we'll be back next week with more interseason goodness oh and it's a Patreon pick next week ah. not a vote but an executive producer pick and it's a big one it's one i think quite a few people have been asking us to talk about for a while and it's an interesting topic it's a big topic Mm. we're going to cover it all next week until then thanks very much for listening see you later see ya